This podcast is brought to you by CDKeyOffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And uh, yeah, let's just introduce you right away without any jokes, Dan. Hi, I'm Dan. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess the joke is you kind of cut me off to introduce yourself, which is good. Also, for some reason, oh, there it was. Your face was frozen on one of the boxes that uh, that shows you on Skype. I don't know if anyone knows this, but for some reason, Skype insists, unless you entirely focus on it in a video call full screen, that there's almost always this, we just call it Little Dan and you call it Little Tom that also appears as a box. So there's just always two of your faces and one of them was frozen on a very funny face when I was opening up the show. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, maybe Skype should just make an infinite number of boxes with my face frozen on it. That would... That would make the uh, performance and your overall app satisfaction better, right? Just keep opening more random boxes for no reason. I mean, that seems to be the mindset of a lot of modern OS design, to be (laughs) honest, (laughs) if you ask me. Not just Windows, by the way. I think you have a real bone to pick, if I remember correctly, with how Apple organizes their operating system with just the infinite boxes opening everywhere and never closing. Or how if you uh, unzip a zip file in iOS or Mac OS, I don't remember what they're call it, they call it right now, I guess. But if you open unzip a file in Mac's OS, for some reason, instead of putting it in like a mm. logical place, it puts it behind the zip file. So it's really, really hard to access. Yeah, I don't know why they do that. You know, I will say this. We've given Linux a lot of crap. Anytime I've used Linux, I like how they organize the boxes and the amount of things that pop up. Like a lot, actually. I think Linux kind of nail at least the distros I've used, like Ubuntu and stuff, nail it. Yeah. I, and Mint. I, it's been a Mint. long time since I've used Linux. I know you used it more than me, so I can't really speak to that. But when I was Apple a college boy, I had to use it in a lot of classes for programming stuff. Yeah. Never minded it. When it's, you know, when Linux is meant to be used for an application. It works great. I just (laughs) just have a problem trying to force things that are meant for Windows. I shouldn't even say meant for Windows. It's not that it's like meant for Windows. Things designed with Windows first on it because half of the time, there's just always some problem. In my experience, again, I know the Linux people, just me talking about this at the opening of the show, there's going to already be, you know, (laughs) angry. We're going to have an army of angry Linux people. That I said anything bad, anything bad about the magic operating system. But, so to end that conversation, Linux is perfect. There, exactly, exactly. If it gets us a like, you know what? At this point, I really don't care. Sure, Linux is perfect. <laughs> Whatever, an insert, you know, if you're an Apple person, Apple's, you know, iOS and Apple OS X, that's perfect. Windows I, 10 is perfect. Windows 11 is perfect. If you hate Windows 10 for some reason, whatever you want to hear, guys, I just don't care about this anymore. I'm going to use the operating system I'm used to. Yep, I like how Windows randomly puts file. I mean, not Windows, Mac randomly puts files in bad places. I like Windows 10 randomly just making my system not work. And I like uh, the stupid organization system 
new organizations of Windows 11. They're all great. It's all great. Let's get into some of the opening reader mails here. Faceplants writes in and he says, what the hell is Amazon up to? In section 42.10 of the terms and conditions, it clearly references a zombie apocalypse. And I'm quoting 42.10, acceptable use, safety critical systems. Your use of the lumberyard materials must comply with the AWS acceptable use policy. The lumberyard materials are not intended for use with life critical or safety critical systems, such as use in operation medical equipment, automated transportation systems, autonomous vehicles, aircraft or aircraft control, nuclear facilities, manned spacecraft, or military use of connection with live combat. This restriction will not apply in the event of the occurrence certified by the United States Centers of Disease Control or Successor body, I like that they put or a successor body, <laughs> of a widespread viral infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluids that causes human corpses to reanimate and to seek consuming living human flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue, and is likely to result in the fall of organized civilization. And so it's like, if it was like the last of us, it's like, okay, so if it was like the fireflies or what, it wasn't the fireflies, whatever succeeded the U.S. government in the U.S. in that game or, you know. I mean, I think that means Amazon knows something and this isn't just some stupid joke a board person put in to their policy. I mean, let's be honest. This is obviously a joke, but why they would do this is the question because it's fun and it will get people to share Amazon stuff. Like, and so marketing is like, just like, yeah, do it. Like we just did. <laughs> and if you look, I believe part of this is Nexus, a video game area. Am I wrong? Or is it just, no, it is just lumber. Yeah. Lumberyard engine which includes like, yeah, so it makes sense why they put this in that part of the terms of service as well. Carbon Cry writes him, Tom, be honest. The only reason you keep dissing Windows 11 is that you will have to redo your CD key offers ad for podcasts and videos. <laughs> I'm not writing so you stop lying to us. I'm writing so you stop lying to yourself. Deep down, you know you want and they need Windows to put you at the center. I mean, I just make fun of Windows 11 because it's so freaking easy to... Uh, to be entirely honest, what I've been told by some early user of Windows 11 is that it really is more efficient, faster, and better than Windows 10. But then they also talk about crashes with certain types of systems. So again, it's like, I think once it's fully working and ready, I, I will use an it'll be fine. It's just, I don't know. I'll, also, that I'll open wait. video was horrible. I mean, my God. But it did put us front and center. So that's really the important thing about Windows 11. I have thought about that, though, Carbon Cry, that I'll have to reduce a lot of those ads. <laughs> so you're not wrong. You know, um, but for now, they don't need to be redoed because, you know, just wait for those products to show up on our sponsors page for Windows 11. Scott Urkelman writes in, oh, wow, Radeon. Of course, this is QXC, by the way. Uh, he says, hey, Tom, want to compete in a 3D market graphics score? You have a 3080 Ti, a 6000, a 1600XT. I don't have them anymore. Um, I, can't, I can't afford to just have these expensive cards lying in a while. Or... Should I say afford? I could afford. I can't justify spending that money on that. Um, a lot of those were lent out to me. Actually, all of those, specifically that list, were lent out to me. Um, he says, I have a 3090 and another one coming to 6900 XC. I think we are well decently matched. The fact is, even if I did have them with me still, nah. I just don't do that drag race components anymore. Uh, that was something I did in college. I just don't do it anymore. I'm just uninterested, really. Don't like pushing your GPU to. 95 degrees forever with Furmark anymore, Tom? I do not. I don't know if it's that bad anymore, but <laughs> that uh, Fermi ran really hot on Furmark. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, really hot. <laughs> um, 
I I, ju- I think this is worth bringing up too, just to remind people. Like when you look at a, a review of my graphic, any graphics card I do, I think people go, "Well, he's comparing an overclocked card to an unoverclocked card. That's not fair." It's like you can't just push a card to the max and compare them. I don't push it to the max. I intentionally only push it to what I can get twenty four seven stable quickly because I feel like that's the real test. And I think at least most of the viewers, the regular viewers of Moore's Law is Dead, overclock their cards. I mean, if you're yeah. watching anything on YouTube you're like a hundred times more likely to overclock your card. And if you watch a channel that's, let's be honest, fairly niche, like Moore's Law is Dead or listen to Broken Silicon, I mean, it's, there's probably a 50-50 chance you overclock. So, I mean, I think it's silly to not overclock the card a little bit in review, but I also think it's silly to push it to the max because I just don't think most people do that either. Yeah, and at this point, it's almost silly to not overclock your card. Like, you don't get the gains you used to get, but it's also so easy. It's so much easier than it used to be and so much more stable. Yeah. Because, yeah, I remember with the 7970, there were certain overclocks where I just knew at an exact temperature it would crash because the memory would get too hot or whatever. Like mm-hmm. it, and, I had, and I had it like written down for each. I had like three different overclocks. Like for the winter, one where I knew the card would never get over like 82 degrees. I had that like crazy like 36% overclock. But then for the summer, I kept it like an 18% overclock. That was... Uh, those days are gone. I don't bother with that anymore. Where I literally am, or I literally, I also had dials on my PC with Delta fans. So if I saw the temperature getting hot while I was gaming, I would turn up a fan that sounded like a vacuum cleaner to keep it stable. That was necessary, yeah. though. I mean, Metro 2033 was not easy to run. No, it's not. Also, same year uh, The Last of Us takes place. Makes you wonder if uh, they know but, something, Tom. They know something, yeah. <laughs> They're all lying to you. All right, let us get into corrections and omissions. Patrick B. Gelsinger writes in, and he says, Hi, Tom. In Broken Silicon 116, you postulated that HDMI 2.1 is better than DisplayPort 2.0, as it can do 8K 120 hertz. This is not the case. HDMI 2.1 has a maximum of 8K 60 hertz, and DisplayPort 2.0 can do 10K 60 hertz. They can both go higher with DSC, which I think is data stream compression. And that extends HDMI 2.1 to 8K120 and DisplayPort to 16K60. Jesus. Um, I mean, I, okay. I, I don't, yeah, but I think with that, see, I guess, look, I'm not an expert. I don't know everything about data stream compression, but I believe them that doesn't mean I'm wrong and data stream compression is required. That doesn't mean they can't do it. I, I remember them mentioning something about 10K at a high refresh rate as well. But I, I guess... It's true that I don't remember off the top of my head in which scenarios it will work. Like, is it not going to work with the latest HDR or will most TVs de facto never support that high of a frame rate? I, I guess I don't know at the top of my head. I th- <laughs> I think uh, either way, I th- you're fine for a while, especially with DSCS. I don't know if monitors will ever get to 16K, so... I, guess I say never end. say never. I just feel like that's one of those things where it's like a magnitude more applies to what I'm about to say with 4K to 8K, which yeah. is that 4K was wanted more than 1440p, but not really as much more. And 8K, if it was the same price, I think most people just take free 8K over 4K. But the desire to pay any extra for it is way less than 4K yeah. for 1440p. And then ever more so with 16K, where 16K is arguably not even perceivable, but I'm sure it will be to some extent and will just make things sharper. And I mean, I, I mean, compared to 8K in any game, but no one's paying for 16K unless it's, I mean, I, I'd pay 10% yeah. more than, than 8K. 
you know, whereas I'd pay like 20 or 30% more for 8K versus 4K or something. I mean, I've never even seen 8K, so <laughs> I don't know. I, I have seen 8K. I mean, it's noticeable. It, it like look if the if the content is built for 8K, it is immediately noticeable to me. But it's not like 1080p to 4K, where it's like obvious. It's like it looks well. It, it is obvious, but it's just not. You know, when I bet 5K to 8K is very hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Dragon Eddie. 031 writes in. It's quite a lot, but it, it, it's it's well researched. Anytime he writes in, it's Dragon Eddie. He, he posts up for resources in the Discord as well for Morris Lasted. So it, it's worth the effort here. Let me get into it. Hi, Tom, Dan, and guest and co. In video, how a new six nanometer Xbox and PlayStation 5 Pro would help availability, which came out the Friday before this podcast came out. You mentioned that wafer production is no longer the issue. I'd say wafer capacity at TSMC is no longer the issue. You're right and wrong, I think, because it's correct to say that 14 nanometer and smaller nodes barely produce enough demand for those products that skyrocket and barely enough, but 28 and higher nodes that's used in cars, power, and adapters, and a lot of other products don't get produced enough. And fab plant for 28 and higher and older nodes are still being built or extended like crazy and come online in 2023 and later. Yeah, so they're still making new 28 nanometer nodes. I mean, uh, fabs. They're still expanding 28 nanometer capacity. Um, according to information in 2024, there will be a overproduction of all semiconductor nodes if demand isn't getting higher than Okay, so that's helpful for later discussions. Because when building these factories, the supply chain must be up to par as producing enough materials to supply these factories uh, for their suppliers and also extend their capacity. Of course, TSMC price hike indicates that capacity titans are undoubtedly expected to persist into 2022. And just recently, the global shortage of computer chips is getting worse. We're seeing automakers to temporarily close factories. So there's a lot of links he puts in there. Another news into will build new fabs in Europe to boost EV and AV car production. It says 28 nanometer chip production capacity becomes sweet and delicious. TSMC, UMC, and SMIC all plan to expand production. Additional 28 28 nanometer node production 2023 continually expand. Yeah, so I guess it depends on the node, but I'm always basically talking about seven nanometer these days for the most part when I talk about capacity. And I guess let me say this. I'm not even really saying that seven nanometer capacity isn't a bottleneck. It's just not even the secondary one. Like I'm told, I talk about this in my recent like kind of follow-up to that PlayStation 5 Pro and Xbox Series S refresh leak, which we'll get to later. Like the follow-up to it where I talk about how they'll actually probably help availability if they were to happen. I say that it's really number one substrate, which is a core material for the actual wafer before it even becomes the final dies. You know, that's the number one holdup right now. That should be alleviated mid-next year. After that is just power components and PCB, like people supplying the PCBs. Um, and then after that, I believe, was something else as well, some other type of circuitry. And then after that's really TSMC 7 nanometer. If we're strictly talking about the 7 nanometer, that's when, again, if you like quadrupled all of those things on 7 nanometer, okay, then yes, no, then TSMC would need more capacity. <laughs> but right now, that's not the holdup, if it makes sense. But yeah, I, I'm not, I guess, yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't some other nodes where they don't have enough. And I did not know that they're just rapidly expanding 28 nanometer that much still. I mean, if we're rapidly expanding the number of cars that are being produced and sold at all times, like it's seeming, I don't know, that makes sense, that capacity for old nodes for things that don't need good compute, or as high-tech computers would continue to accelerate, even though we don't really care about those nodes anymore because they don't go into gaming hardware. 
Right. Not not the hardware we really care about, at least. Um, and you can see why, you know, like at a certain point, 28 nanometer is so not expensive to make anymore that that's just the go-to for anything that relatively needs okay performance and efficiency. I know there's still plenty of like 65 on like 130 well, I mean, nanometer though as well. <laughs> Hell, what's uh, Texas Instruments on at this point? <laughs> like that the, the, you don't need uh, the most advanced nodes for most uses. Like the whatever TI, uh, Texas Instruments was using on their TI-83s is still fine. Well, and it's also worth mentioning that when it comes to older nodes, they're typically more rugged when it comes to things like ultra longevity and like radiation. Mm. Like I know NASA, I think, isn't really planning to go past like 40 nanometer anytime soon. I could have the node wrong, but they're like, no, it's because like, look, the closer we get to one nanometer people, the more often it is going to be the CPU that fails before other components sometimes. Like that doesn't really... Uh, especially 10 years ago, me and you just never would almost never check if the CPU is what caused a system to break because they just don't break. Like they don't break. It's going to be the RAM or the uh, often the power supply or a lot of times I find the motherboard is what's the first thing to fail in any PC. But not so much anymore because motherboards are crazy over-engineered compared to where they used to be. But, you know, I, the closer we get to one nanometer, the closer like they're going to say, no, really, if you use this, you know, I nine twenty four seven for a few years. It it will just break now. Like it it will yeah. just break because we're just and, getting closer to the limits of physics. And then with the example of NASA, once you get to NASA, they're also incredibly harsh on their components because you know yes. they're not protected by the ozone layer anymore. Yeah. Patrick B. Gelsinger writes in again and says, "Hi Tom, in Broken Silicon one one seven. When JavaScript is mentioned, you mentioned Minecraft. Minecraft is built on Java runtime environment, not JavaScript. JavaScript is not similar or related to Java. Bad okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I got it wrong, man. This is why we have corrections and omissions, though. Carbon Cry writes in, in Broken Silicon 116, you say that people trashing Alder Lake now in late August are AMD fanboys, just like the people who trashed Zen 3 were Intel fanboys. I think you're wrong. The people trashing Alder Lake the most, as far as I can tell, are just old Intel fanboys. <laughs> They're angry because not everything's just more big cores like Skylight gave them forever. Yeah, I don't know that I disagree, actually. To a certain extent, some of the biggest doubters of Alder Lake are people that for some reason just want six gigahertz on Skylake over and over with more cores and don't understand that there are other ways to scale performance. These are often the same people that said Zen will never work because it splits up the dies and there'll be too much latency. And now they're just saying, well, Big Little's just never going to work, which it's like, it is. You have to do new things sometimes. Where's my 20 gigahertz, though, Tom? That's the only way forward. I mean, I, let's see when graphene and carbon nanotube CPUs are out. Maybe that is when we will see that. <laughs> but otherwise, I believe we should see if input latency is a factor for DLSS by moving on to story number three. Story number uh, story number three. God dang it, I almost <laughs> did it. Why did I say three? Story. Leave, you can leave that in, Gerard. I don't even care. Story number one. Hardware unboxed test DLSS input latency, and I have somewhat of a write-up here. Uh, the first thing is directly quoting what Tim says at Hardware Unboxed, which I think this is an important story because we've talked about how DLSS sometimes has latency issues compared to FSR. Here's what Tim literally says in the video testing DLSS input latency. In most realistic use cases, DLSS does not increase latency. 
In most cases, DLSS increases frame rate, and therefore that is what reduces latency. However, there are circumstances where DLSS hurts latency at high frame rates in some games. Guys, this is what he says in the video. He also goes, but again, in most realistic use cases in recent games, DLSS does not hurt latency. And I kind of broke it down too. He said Metro Exodus uh, didn't have any latency issues. And then and I compared it, I, I counted the games too, where you could kind of have a direct frame rate to frame rate comparison, typically being DLSS on in 1440p compared to 1080p without it. So it's a similar frame rate. Then you look at the latency, right? So because mm -hmm. you need an apples to apples, right? You can't just be like, oh, well, DLSS on, it's lower. Well, yeah, you have a higher frame rate. But like in Metro Exodus, it was slightly higher without it. Watch Dogs slightly higher with DLSS. Cyberpunk slightly higher without DLSS. And Fortnite, lower latency without DLSS in a few circumstances that he actually examined further and finds that, yeah, DLSS does add latency in Fortnite sometimes. Otherwise, uh, most of the other games I found, it wasn't a direct opening for apples to apples comparisons. Now, also, to be clear, Hardware and Box found that this was a preposterous thing to test when you look at how DLSS works, that you could conceivably think it might add latency. So I thought this was worth adding. You know, I've talked about it, and I've openly said that Metro didn't have any latency issues as far as I could tell, but Battlefield 5 always felt like it did. Now, I am forced to conclude that most likely that's just because DirectX 12 is crap in Battlefield 5. Well, and uh, what... I think, and, and Ray Tracing, battle... if you use it, I think does, does Battlefield uh, does Battlefield Five have DLSS two point I don't even remember. I know they updated okay. it with better DLSS eventually. They they and I thought it was. I, I saw some tests that claimed that it worked pretty well, but in my experience, it when you turned on DLSS, it just felt worse. You know, and I mean without ray tracing as well. But that's Battlefield Five, a game he didn't test. Now another reason I brought this up is it's funny. Steve reached out to me from Hardware Unboxed after this video came out. And he said, I want to be clear, this wasn't taking a shot at you. And I'm like, well, I haven't watched the video yet, but I wouldn't have thought it would. And he goes, yeah, I don't know. I just saw some comments in it. They were like, finally taking a shot at Moore's Law is dead. And then I watched the video and I don't know how you draw that conclusion. <laughs> I, I think the big takeaway from this is in realistic scenarios, it doesn't really increase latency. That uh, DLSS 2.0 doesn't really noticeably increased latency in most circumstances. Overwhelming um, majority of circumstances. Yeah, and the case where your CPU bound, turning DLSS on increases latency, which that is a scenario that doesn't make sense why you would turn DLSS on unless you're a person that doesn't know how, that doesn't understand how frame rates work or what being CPU bound or GPU bound means. Because if you're CPU bound, why would you lower your graphical settings to uh, increase frame rate? That just doesn't make mm. sense. So I think the big takeaway is, well, you say there's no apples to apples comparison. There are a few. Because, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important to note though, that yes, the fact that it's lower la input latency is because it's a higher frame rate, but it still is lower latency. So the the thing you're getting at the end of the day still is lower latency than what you would have had with DLSS off. Now, maybe you can make the claim that a game at 120 hertz with DLSS on and that same game at 120 hertz with it off might have lower latency and with it off. Very but, slightly different either way. But that's uh, that real world scenario is just not going to 
come across, isn't going Most, to Almost no one will come across that. And yeah. the reason he did this video for sure isn't based on anything I've said. I don't believe, at least from my perspective, I haven't made a big deal about this. I've only said that in a couple games, it felt like it was a problem, but I've heard some people suggest it to me. Um, the reason he did this, and he says it in the video, is clearly because a lot of Warzone players, Call of Duty Warzone players, leave it mm. off because it has a bad reputation for causing lag in the game, which I can't say I know anything about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, nor Fortnite. I don't play Fortnite. What I can say is it was terrible in Battlefield 5 for me, and it was fine in Metro Exodus, and they didn't test Battlefield 5. So... <laughs> <laughs> But what I would so, uh, say is that it's probably worth not making a big deal out of it moving forward because it does seem like they proved in at least recent DLSS implementations, it's not a latency adder almost ever. Yeah, that that's a good way to put it. And that was a pretty good shot fired back at Hardware on Bones. Oh, man, just so, tore him a new one with that one. Yeah, I know. When we said we agreed with his video entirely, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But I mean, I guess, is there anything else? Maybe we've talked about it enough, but moving into, I thought this might also be an opportunity this episode to bring up DLSS and FSR and XE Super Sampling for next year. I mean, how important, I have a, a, a my main system uses NVIDIA. I use DLSS to, I believe, great effect in Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, which I believe Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition on PC using an NVIDIA card is the best way to play it. Like, it, I've tested it on mm-hmm. a few systems. And I have a friend who played it on, what is it, the Enhanced Metro Exodus on PC, PlayStation 5 native. And he said it had some issues with, like, I think he said, like, the aiming was just crazy sluggish or something, which doesn't surprise me that happens every now and then. But I don't know. I, I mean, I have it for the PC, the Enhanced Edition for PC, so... Whenever I get around to actually having time to play Metro Exodus, I will report back on my experience. Well, uh, the reason I say that is because it DLSS with ray tracing really does mm-hmm. work really well with no bugs, which is not in every game. There's plenty of games with DLSS where if I turn on DLSS, there's bugs, um, but not the case of Metro Exodus. It's it's more stable than the base game by a notable margin for me, no matter what system I use. And you can just crank up ray tracing. It works fine. I think I'm playing with ray tracing on high and then ultra settings for the main game graphical effects. And then I have it in 4K with DLSS balanced and it looks great and it's running at 100 frames down with ray tracing at high. Yeah, that's pretty nice. With a 3070, not 3080 Ti. <laughs> so I think, you know, I guess is DLSS a big factor for you when you look at Lovelace and RDNA 3 coming down the pipeline? That's basically my question. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, uh, it kind of has to be. That's a huge feature they're pushing. Uh, especially, uh, Even with FSR out. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to see which feature ends up giving you the best uh, gaming experience. And if it turns to DLSS over time, I'm perfectly happy saying that. Yeah, I guess it, uh, for now, it's still somewhat of a waiting game as most games don't have DLSS nor FSR. and They're rapidly being added. If every yeah. game had FSR and half of them had DLSS, I would. I guess that's what it would take for me to still say DLSS is a major feature. Whereas if it feels like at a certain point, it's like PhysX where it's like, what, there's two releases during the year and you probably want to turn it off in one of them. If that's what DLSS becomes, it's not, a, I'm not going to mention it as a real selling point. But if it, if it if it's in like half the games and works as well as it works in Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, I say that remains a big feature versus FSR. Again, unless, as we've discussed, FSR becomes something much bigger, 
And I mean, again, XE super sampling is looming and that's going to be usable on all cards as well, which is interesting. Yeah, that, that that's definitely true. It depends, like if AMD's promise that this is going to be easier to implement and it will show up in more games is true, even if DLSS edges out in quality, if it's only there, if it's there half as much or a quarter as much as FSR, I would say FSR is a more enticing feature. Or or it neutralizes the, the worry yeah. or, or, the, or the consideration that you would really want DLSS. Yeah. Let us move on then, speaking of next-gen cards, to story number two. Hey, I got it right this time, Dan. More <laughs> evidence of GPU refreshes in quarter one 2022 and new, co- new cards in quarter three or four of 2022. By new cards, I mean an entirely new generation with new architectures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom has been leaking little details here and there for the past six months regarding what cards from AMD and NVIDIA may get refreshed and entirely replaced with a new generation and when. More evidence is leaking from a Twitter user, Graymon55, which I cannot personally vouch for at this time, but so far seems to have a pretty solid reputation that further points to some sort of die shrink and half-step refresh in early 2022 with the full generation upgrade later in the year. Now, I I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming you looked at these tweets, Dan. I guess the biggest concrete takeaway is for me is more evidence that there will be some sort of die shrink of either Ampere or an early 750 Ti-like Lovelace launch from NVIDIA early next year, next to six nanometer RDNA 2 to combat Intel XE's launch also in the first half mm-hmm. of that year. And then they'll roll out the rest of the lineup as soon as possible in the second half of the year with Lovelace and RDNA 3. It's hard to really add too much with this new leak. It's kind of a thing we've been speculating or even talking about, talking about somewhat concretely for a while now, that I think with the launch of Intel's uh, graphics cards, there might need to be a smaller stopgap refresh generation for amd and nvidia to you know remain in the limelight in marketing or in the consumers minds i should say yeah i mean i would point out just because there's a lot of people that are like you know should they you know does it make sense to do this why would they do this you know when they have a new generation coming it's like well at the end of the day if let's take it step by step here so in the case of if amd refreshes on six nanometer with Navi 22 and Navi 23, which I believe I speculated since my first launch. Like, this is probably what they're going to do for the low end next gen instead of expensive RDNA 3. It just seemed like common sense to me. Um, well, I, I mean, moving to six nanometer, it's design compatible and they could just make the die at the very least of a 6700 XT smaller, more mid range, more lower mid range, like, like 300 millimeters squared clock it 10% faster, like maybe even just 5% faster, give it faster memory, and boom, there you go. You have now what can be like a $400 6600 XT that's pretty close to a 3070 in performance or 3070 Ti possibly. And that's not going to be held up by any bug testing or validation for RDNA 3. So not only does it make sense for AMD to do this with Navi 22 and 23 as a you know, more cost-effective low-end below RDNA 3, but they can launch it next to XE's launch without worrying about, oh, what if RDNA 3 gets delayed because of a hardware bug a quarter or two? That happened with RDNA 1. 
And there are yeah. still hardware bugs, supposedly. <laughs> and, you know, newer architectures require a lot of testing. I was talking to someone at AMD about this recently when it comes to like what, what the PlayStation 5 Pro might use and how soon they need to lock in the design. And it's like, to remember, any newer stuff that goes in, it requires actually more testing. So it's, it really is a balance why consoles might not use all of the newest features so they can validate it and get it ready and approved sooner. You don't have to worry about that with a 6 nanometer RDNA too. It just makes sense to launch. You know, I yeah, think. I mean, it, it's probably just relatively, it's relatively cheap to put Navi 22 on six nanometer and call it, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe, maybe they would call it the 6700 XTX or they go to the 7000 series with that. I, I don't know what they'll do, but it probably isn't very expensive to die shrink Navi 22 and 23. Now, as for NVIDIA launching some other low-end refresh, it's a little different. You know, they can obviously die shrink or Samsung, I believe, offers similar kind of like design compatible nodes to eight nanometer. Oh, here it is. Found it. Let me see. Oh, no, it is. I don't believe it is design compatible with eight nanometer, but there is a Samsung seven nanometer, six and five nanometer that are all design compatible that they could okay. use. It would require some more work, but it's like, it would make a lot of sense to me why they might be working on die shrinking at the very least like a GA 103 or 104 uh, to a smaller Samsung node right now that is just Ampere. And then they launch that as the Super Series and rebrand it as the low end for a very long time. And then they use TSMC for dual sourcing for Lovelace. That makes entire that makes a ton of sense to me as well. It's not exactly the same situation as like an AMD RDNA 6 nanometer die shrink, mm-hmm. but it's a similar idea of like, we can do this now, get something out more efficient that competes with XE now, and then we can have Lovelace for the high end later. It doesn't really make sense to use TSMC 5 nanometer, which is what it sounds like NVIDIA is doing for Lovelace um, for an entire lineup. It just doesn't make sense to put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, and once again, if especially now if AMD and Intel have a new GPU out, yeah, I guess I'll say early next year, NVIDIA kind of, ha- I think, kind of has to put something out uh, at least near it. Because if they follow with Lovelace in uh, quarter four of next year, that's probably going to be like eight months where NVIDIA just doesn't have anything new. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I'd say about that from the NVIDIA perspective and like, why would NVIDIA do this like a super series when they already have TIs and they have Lovelace coming is it's just like, you just have to remember that just because like, let's say there is a 3060 Super, and it looks weird because there's already a 3060 Ti and a 3060, and it's like, I don't know, a Samsung 5 nanometer die shrink of like GA104 or something, and it's like really competing with the 3070, or like, like why would they do this half a year before the next generation? Well, because there's still half a year's of sales right there, and they want to stay competitive with RDNA 2 on 6 nanometer and XE. And then also, it doesn't need to only be used for that. They can rebrand that as the 40 series cards, like a 4050 Ti if they want to next year. Just because at first, it's just going to fall into this weird, like kind of co, uh, co-mingling co with their existing generation right before a new one doesn't mean they can't keep rebranding it and that that work is a waste of time. Yeah, and I would say, I don't think... NVIDIA is any stra- a stranger to having a, uh, what would the term be, an overly stacked lineup with uh, a seemingly infinite amount of cards in their product stack. 
And on top of that, I'm assuming launching a super would probably coincide with them discontinuing some of those cards because yeah, right. it would probably be weird having a 3060 super or 3070 super, 3070 and a 3070 TI all exist next to each other. That would look weird. Well, and you know, actually another point I just thought to bring up is laptops. I mean, Nvidia, it shouldn't you shouldn't need a source to know NVIDIA's disappointed with the efficiency of their new laptop cards. Like, yeah. I think GA104 is pretty impressive, but even that on desktop, I guess that is. Like, and I guess the golden samples in the A-series are impressive, but if you look at their laptop cards, it really is like a 10 to 20% performance boost over their really impressive mobile Turing cards. And it would make sense to do this right now to the 3060 and the 3050 Ti on laptop are not well received. They're kind of openly being talked about as like, if you bought a 2060 laptop, you don't need any of this crap. Like it's like the same efficiency <laughs> practically. It's like 20% better at most, depending on the SKUs you're comparing. So it would make sense to refresh Again, what could be used as a laptop die on a smaller node to get those into competitive laptops as soon as possible because Lovelace will come to desktop first and they don't want to wait a whole year before they have Lovelace laptop cards when Intel's coming out with a really laptop-focused XE. That's another yeah. reason they'd want to do this. It's really for laptop guys, not for desktop. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, let us move on to some reader mails before the next story then that are related. Where Tactus writes in, or where Tacus writes in, he says, can we expect to see 40 series cards with more text similar to the LHR, but specifically targeted at limiting performance and professional workloads to force professionals into buying Quadro cards? They're technically not Quadro anymore. They're A-series. He says, is NVIDIA going to lean into this artificial segmentation of the next gen, or is it generally considered a failure? Um, well, I answer this in two ways. One, are they going to do like LHR right out of the gate to prevent mining? I don't know, but what I would say is everyone says, oh, they'll find a way to sell dyes directly to miners again. They just make so much money off of this. So either way, there's going to be the same supply concerns if mining is as uh, in as big of a boom when Lovelace launches as it is now. Secondly, will they do this to limit performance and professional workloads? I think a lot of that has to do with how good Intel XE is in professional workloads, which I'm told it could be incredibly good in some of them. So... And all you have to do to think about this is, or to realize what they, if they would or wouldn't do this, is what they did with, I believe, Titan Pascal and Vega. Titan Pascal came out, then Vega came out, beating it in workloads at a lower price with more memory. You know, the Vega Frontier with 16 gigabytes, mm -hmm. which is better than Titan Pascal, 12 gigabytes on a lot of things, even at same energy usage. And then NVIDIA just does an update that makes it better at some professional apps by a large margin. NVIDIA has done this before. So you need to ask me, will they do this? Yes, if they can get away with it. But if they can't get away with it, then they won't. It really is that simple. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was just going to say, like, the whole LHI thing, I think the reason, if you read stuff online about people that are paying attention, why they were super uh, disturbed or worried about the whole LHR fiasco wasn't necessarily because... Like we've mm -hmm. been talking about, like there are miners that wanted to do it that can't mine anymore. You're an individual miner who's like the only person this is really harming is an individual miner. A lot of people's concerns are just this is NVIDIA just saying, well, artificially uh, weaken your card. And even if this isn't an application I use, that is a worrying 
thing that they're demonstrating that they can and will do. And I would point out, have done in the they past. Have yeah, <laughs> like, they have done. Like, no one it. seems to have realized that until now. Not to the same degree um, as before, because now they're like literally making silicon, like with like, that really makes it hard or more controllable directly and harder to hack. But I mean, they've done this before and they'll do it again if they can. And it that is the real concern of most people, like you say. Yeah. A named person writes in, he says, I bet you a buck of fry, a bucket of fried chicken that XE will scale down relatively well to laptop and that the full 512 execution unit die will be on laptop as well. I don't know why it wouldn't be. I mean, it's about the same die size as 3070 and GA 104 is in laptop. So yeah, I think, in fact, it's no coincidence that Intel's biggest die this first time around is around the biggest you can easily fit into a laptop. I think that's not a coincidence. That's their focus, but they'll have desktop cards as well. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wouldn't take this bet. <laughs> exactly, which I just, I still think that's funny. I remember a certain tech tuber saying everyone had XE wrong and it's not coming to desktop. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, guys. They've even confirmed it. Anyways, let us move on to story number three. Intel Arc Alchemist leak confirms Moore's Laws at Info of a 3070 competitor. And so I've got uh, some, I think, yeah, Twitter leaks, uh, links here to like Graymon, some stuff here from video cards showing a leaked, uh, a supposed leaked Intel slide but I have no reason to doubt it. And quoting from video cards, Intel DG2 GPUs are set to compete with NVIDIA's upper mid-range segment officially, according to this leaked slide. I like that he calls 3070 upper mid-range because it's not high-end, guys. It's the middle die, right? I just, I, just, I, I like the official, it's officially uh, confirmed based on a, an allegedly a leaked slide. Yeah, I won't touch that. Continuing the, the, to quote, though, according to this leaked slide, the SOC1 DG2 would compete with a 175 to 225 TDP segment directly with NVIDIA's RTX 3070 and 3060 Ti. The SOC, and then the SOC2 is up to 75 watt TDP and is clearly meant to be a more mainstream GPU with at most 1650 super performance based on the slide. Now, so two things. Two SOCs shown right? And these will be cut down into different cards. And one of them is around the performance and power usage I leaked five months ago. But then there's also a 75 watt one that's shown next to a 1650 Super. One would argue almost slightly below it. And I just want to point this out. In the article, um, Why Cry from Video Cards speculates that this is the 256 or 384 EU die. I don't know why you would assume that. If you look up, based on at least Tech Power Up's rough estimations of performance, a 1650 Super is around a third the performance of a 3070, guys. So that, to me, mm-hmm. tells me this is at most the 256 EU, and it is most likely possibly a 128 EU die, which I expect to be clocked a lot faster than the 512 one. And then people will be good to look at this. I leaked five months ago, everybody. That the order of release is 512 execution unit and then 128. I know some leakers keep doubling down on this 384 EU die. I, from my understanding, it's 512 and 128, and the 128 is meant to be the sub $200 market. And, you know, 128 uh, cut down from 512, that's four times fewer execution units or vector engines, I believe is what they're calling them. Yeah. Uh, Four, so that's four times less, a third this power. Like that's not unrealistic to assume that they could make up for that with a higher clock speed. No, nope, like, not at that's all. Perfectly reasonable. 
And I, I do believe, and now again, I can't 100% confirm that, but what I can confirm is that this whole time, my sources have always said it's 512 and 128, and there's also been testing of other ones, specifically the 256. Uh, and that any 384 is seemingly, they, they've tested 384 dyes, I think, but most of them are cut down 512 EU dyes, to my understanding. And that the 128 EU models, the full die for that is being tested right now and should come out pretty close to the 512. And I think this is important because this is a market no one's servicing. And if they can launch what will probably be like a 100 to 200 millimeter squared card that's as powerful as 1650 Super or maybe even touches the 1660, hopefully, mm-hmm. that getting that to 150 at 75 watts would be a killer card for people that just want a reasonably priced low-end card. Uh, and, and that really excites me, especially because I think, based on what I'm seeing, the capacity they're planning to ship, they could ship just a ton of these cards, um, especially in laptop for low prices, lower prices than NVIDIA's charging. Um, I, know, I think that's worth talking about, not just that NVIDIA is clear, I mean, I'm sorry, that Intel is clearly going to compete in the upper mid-range, at least what we now call the upper mid-range. Who knows if this is the mid-range or low-end by the time it comes out. But that... Sure. The 128EU model is very clearly, I think, coming close to it. And this is a sorely needed product in a market that just ignores the low end. I, I mean, yeah, looking at that lineup, like all of the things, most of the things above it even, or about half of the things above the SOC2 uh, are, are old cards too. So having a new low end card is completely lacking in the market. And, you know, Intel going for a a niche in the market that doesn't exist anymore makes perfect sense for their first attempt. Yeah, I guess another thing I would say is right now, I 100% am sure the top model beats the 3060. And I've always said their goal was to beat the 3070. Again, I have to keep bringing this up, guys. It's a six nanometer die that's about the same size as a 3070 Ti's die. So you have a six nanometer version of a die that's around a 3070 Ti size. I think it's uh, it's pretty easy to assume that it should at least be comparable to a cut down version of that with how much better TSMC 6 nanometer is than Samsung's 8 nanometer. Even if it's an inferior architecture to Ampere, even if this is Intel's first try, that's a massive node advantage. I would expect this to beat the 3070. And if it didn't, I would expect it to use like 125 watts or I would say, what the <laughs> heck, Intel? I, I, I feel like it's always seemed that since it's become more clear at least what DG2 is going to look like, that it would at least beat the 3060, I think. <laughs> like, that's pretty... I just think that's pretty clear from all of the evidence we have at this point that if they don't beat the 3060, this was kind of a... Not a failure necessarily, but kind of a failure at their first attempt to release this. Uh, not impressive cards. at the very Yeah, least. not impressive is a good way, to, better way to put it. And, you know, I think people are going to look back at a lot of content from 2020 and go, why did hmm. almost no one think Intel a massive company could make a card as strong as something that was like a year older on a better node. I mean, come on, guys. Yeah, I know. I just don't know how people came to that. Larabee failed. This is not Larabee. Yeah, and I I mean, by the time it comes out, it'll probably be like 16 months, almost a year and a half by the time this comes out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not that huge of a... Accomplishment, really. Yeah. But it is pretty good for a first try. (laughs) 
Yes, yeah. And something that I'm really excited about, uh, depending on how well strivers work out. But um, Uwim writes in, he says, you've talked about, you've talked enough about presumably rasterization performance of DG2, but have you heard anything about its ray tracing performance? It sounds like they really want to bring a competitive product on all fronts. So I'm hoping for some good RT as well. So I don't remember which content it was in, maybe everything I'm about to list, but I talked about XC High HPG is what it was titled in a late 2020 leak. I did a full 512 EU leak early this year and then mid this year or like a month after that, I think I did the PCB leak. Maybe it was two months after actually, you know, and all of this had updated uh, XE information. I think pretty consistently, I just don't remember the each piece of content in which broken silicons, mm -hmm. but I've said that they expect the raster, uh, the ray tracing performance. I've at least talked about this in broken silicons multiple times. The ray tracing performance of Alchemist, shall we say, is technically what I should probably be saying of Alchemist to be, how do we put this? Maybe teraflop for teraflop, better than RDNA2, but not as good at, well, you can't even do that because Ampere just has a ton of teraflops. Shall, uh, shall we say, for the die size, maybe a little better than RDNA2, but not as good as one of it. Ampere has a huge die size. Here's what I was literally told. In the segments they compete in, expect XE to be better than RDNA2, but worse than Ampere. There. Yeah. That's how I, <laughs> in other words, I, I, I most of the time just say I expect it to be competitive ray tracing performance with both AMD and NVIDIA. Because even saying the segments they compete in is tricky because it's like, well, which game? If it's Resident Evil 8, RDNA 2 is pretty close to Ampere. But if it's Metro Exodus Enhanced or Minecraft, it's not close <laughs> at all. You know, like, so I would just say expect XE to be competitive in ray tracing. That seems to be Intel's entire uh, goal with uh, Alchemist is, <laughs> is to be competitive in everything they're competing in. Like, I think the fact that they're also immediately launching with a DLSS slash FSR competitor shows that they're intending to attack on all fronts, at least. Yeah, to ha yeah, because they need to. Uh, they just, they need to, you know. Um, 0x000FF4 writes in and says, will ArcZ HPG include a software stack for machine learning? And how will it compare to the performance of the, hard of the hardware NVIDIA has in the mach machine learning Field. Almost completely stumbled through that question. But I think everyone <laughs> understood me. Uh, I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I, I think they did. And I think if you look at their hot chips presentation, XE is clearly meant to be, should be able to be very good at machine learning. Now, will the software stack be ready right away? I don't know. It's taken RDNA2 forever to be good at, you know, have the software for that as well. And I was always told RDNA2 should be decently good at some machine learning tasks. I think XE should be very competitive if the software is there. And this is something Intel is clearly very interested in being competitive at. So yeah, I'd say eventually, yes, for sure. Yeah, and I, I would also just say, uh, look at um, Ian Cutris's uh, Anantech, what, what would you call analysis of the uh, Alchemist unveil? Like, yeah, they're putting a lot of space <laughs> on the die uh, for machine learning. So I would assume there's going to be a push for machine learning on Intel. In fact, Intel may eventually just start having integrated machine learning accelerators in some of their APUs and some architectures. <laughs> There's a leak coming about that at some point. Anyways, let us move on to story number four. AMD, confident in our suppliers, set to grow in 2022, and GPUs are for gamers. So this, I'm quoting here from Tom's Hardware, um, some recent statements by AMD. 
so far this year, AMD's sales have been very strong. The company earned $7.295 billion in the first two quarters of the year and is on track to hit the goal of growing its revenue by 60% year over year. That's insane. To hit its financial targets this year, AMD had to prioritize manufacturing of products it had committed to supply, as well as high margin models, which sometimes means giving up unit share. In fact, AMD gained unit and revenue share in servers and mobile client PCs, but its unit share in desktops dropped in quarter two, 2021, even though it has some of the best CPUs to date. And I would point out they're selling better than ever. As the company focused its production on high margin server CPUs, as well as on mobile processors, which it had committed to supply to PC makers in advance for this generation. Meanwhile, the company's unit share on the market of discrete GPUs for desktop and laptop PCs dropped to a multi-year low in quarter two, 2021. A recent Steam hardware survey revealed that they were 11 times more gamers using NVIDIA. Then again, John Petty Research said it was more of a 9 to 2 ratio. I'm sorry. I don't know why anyone's quoting Steam hardware survey. It's absurdly inaccurate, guys. Yeah, I, I, it always gets quoted, and then every time it gets quoted, there's a flood of people saying Steam hardware survey isn't, doesn't collect very good data. Just go talk to people in any Discord for hardware, and it's like, I don't know, a third of the people of AMD, a fourth. Like this idea that it's like 10 times. Guys, Steam hardware survey is bullshit. Stop quoting it if you're a journalist. You should not be quoting Steam Hardware Survey, at least not consistently to prove a point, because it is not something worth quoting. I'm not going to get into why I've talked about it too much. Let me finish the write-up, because I'm just getting mad now. So after reviewing data from both sources, well, I'd say one source and one not source, some of Verver's accused AMD of selling its Radeon GPUs to large mining firms rather than sending them to the retail channel after seeing a video on Reddit. AMD's CFO denied the accusations and said that demand from miners was negligible, which, by the way, if they're lying, you should sue them if you can prove them wrong because they'll make a lot of money. Something I always get mad at when people say AMD or NVIDIA or Intel are lying about these sorts of things, at least flagrantly. Like, no, then you sue them. Like, NVIDIA, like, bends the truth, well, I think, with shipping mining cards, but they're not lying. They, they say they're shipping at least a third. To miners. Well, it, and if you'll remember correctly, why they're being more um I think they were sued over about it, actually. <laughs> yeah, why they're being more transparent about that now is because their shareholders sued them a couple of years ago because they attributed their mining sales to Fortnite. Yeah, which to be clear, <laughs> that did happen to NVIDIA. They did lie and they were sued. So again, you know. AMD's statement is this. First, crypto is negligible. That is not the priority for us. We do not prioritize our product or make them for the crypto folks. It is more for gamers, and that's our high priority from that standpoint. What has driven the GPU revenue growth, as you know, is we have Radeon RX 6000 series high-end GPUs and are very competitive, and that's driving our current growth in the GPU space. In other words, guys, uh, this is an important thing to bring up for a few reasons, um, specifically to tackle this idea of a few things. Stop quoting the same hardware survey. At the end of the day, AMD's selling about a fifth as many cards to gamers. Um, well, no, not even to gamers. Can't say that. They're selling about a fifth or a, a between like a fifth and a third as many cards in general this year. But it's not because they're not shipping a lot of them. They have a ton of revenue coming in. And it's they're making more cards than ever, especially more high-end cards than ever. The fact is NVIDIA is just outproducing them. They're just get they're getting a chance to make just so many of their cards on Samsung's and Animator. That's why NVIDIA is outselling them so much. Not because AMD is not making them and not because AMD is not send, sending them to miners. I do expect this to change with RDNA 3. I don't, I don't know. What, what else would you say about this story? 
Um, I mean, it's hard to discuss uh, about ratios because at this point, AMD and NVIDIA are both growing. Their sales are both astronomical. NVIDIA has more money. They can put out more products, assuming they can buy the capacity. And AMD is producing uh, all their cards on an already more constrained uh, manufacturer, TSMC, or what's the right term? A a hotter ticket than uh, Samsung is, I guess, TSMC is. Yeah. And they're also producing all of their CPUs on on those same nodes. So it just kind of stands to reason that they would be able to manufacture less than NVIDIA. Now, if all things were equal and they were able to manufacture the exact same amount of cards as NVIDIA, would they sell 50-50? I mean, I don't know. That's kind of an impossible question to answer because that's not the world we live in. (laughs) I would say NVIDIA still has better brand recognition. So, you know, I think people that are less focused on tech hardware probably just default to NVIDIA more often. But that's honestly the most I can say. Like the fact that they're selling about one to five against NVIDIA seems to be somewhat in line with where they've always been. But the market's also growing. At least for the past decade. Yeah. And but the market's also growing a lot right now. So they might still be selling one to five against NVIDIA. But that doesn't mean NVIDIA is taking a substantial amount more of the market than they've ever They're been. They're just taking more of the growing market, and AMD is still selling more than they have with previous gens. It's just not nearly enough compared to how NVIDIA is just crazy producing cards. Yeah. And I guess the other things I would say is this. So, so I do not believe AMD is making mining cards in mass right now. No one that I talk to says this. What I will say is I have seen some mining card pictures, and I don't know where they're from or where, you know. Oh, yeah. But I don't know if that's, it's not AMD mass making them for them and like shipping them like NVIDIA is. However, I wouldn't be surprised if they did eventually once supply started meeting demand a little bit. That's the caveat I will say is I'm not saying they won't ever do it. I kind of hear that they might make a mining version of Navi 21 once they start transitioning to six nanometer uh, Navi 22 and RDNA 3 next year. So that might be a thing to use up some of their old stock. Additionally, Um, I would say that I think you just got to understand that right now, AMD is in charge of the CPU market in a way they won't be for maybe ever again. And so that's why you prioritize Zen 3. It's more profitable and they have this lead over Intel before Alder Lake launches. It would behoove them to really, really focus not just on Epic, but then also consumer Zen 3 way before they worry about taking high-end market share. Take several gens of minds of like, better competition against your competitor before people regard you in the same mindshare. And I think they just know that NVIDIA still is the mindshare, but that people see RDNA 2 as competitive again in some circles. And then if they can nail it with RDNA 3, that's when they should drive for it. And, and I will say this, a lot of people I talk to at AIBs and in distribution still expect Lovelace to crush AMD in sales because of mindshare and because NVIDIA will outproduce them. And, and because they expect RDNA 3 to be expensive to, you know, package. But let Mm -hmm. me say this. Don't underestimate what that six nanometer RDNA 2 can do if it really does come out. Everyone's like, oh, Lovelace will be easier to produce with a mostly monolithic design that they'll hopper for the high end maybe. And that, you know, that's why they'll outship AMD. What happens if AMD buys up just tons, boatloads of capacity of six nanometer for a Navi 22 die shrunk to a 300 millimeter square die and just calls it the 7700 XT 
or 60, 7,600 XT and spits them out like crazy below a mindshare taking high-end card that's expensive, but isn't the majority of their production. I just don't think you can rule out that might be AMD strategy, that they know there's no point really in focusing on taking all of the market share until they've had time to really cement themselves as competitive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Tick Dickler writes in. He says, gentlemen, there seems to be an enormous capex in the semi-space with hundreds of billions in private and government money being spent over the next few years. Most recently, with Intel being awarded a DoD contract to establish a leading edge U.S. ecosystem with the aggressive company roadmaps you've leaked, Tom. I'm curious. Should we be looking forward to an overcorrection pushing prices down right about when the real cool shit comes out? Or will prices always suck going forward? Not asking for Apple. I already know the answer. Best regards. Well, here's what I would say. I don't think it's reasonable to think things will never swing back ever because eventually something's going to happen with overproduction. It's just human nature. Like right now, I'm literally being told that a lot of companies are ordering two to four times what they actually need, not just in the semi-space, but everywhere. Because they're like, whatever we can get, whatever we can get, if we can buy it up, we'll sell. Give us as much as possible. When I hear that, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know when the crash is going to happen, but it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen this year. And I don't think it's going to happen necessarily early next year. But I do think we should expect slowly, and I put this underlined in all caps in my notes, slowly getting better prices here and there, And you're kind of seeing it happen here and there right now. It's just very slight, and it's only some products, but it's happening. You're seeing Zen 3 go down in price before Alder Lake. They're in stock like on AMD. Like, let me pull up AMD.com right now. Like, right now, what do we have? Yeah, uh, even, yeah, the 5600X, the 5950X, these are always in stock on AMD.com, and they're doing price cuts on Amazon. So they're making enough of them, guys. Now, Zen 3 has met demand, and you're seeing some cards not as marked up. I think we'll get slowly better over time, but I'm not willing to bet on when the crash will happen. I I somewhat expect that people will say there's kind of a crash next year, but it won't really happen until like mid-2023. That's a guess. My guess is mid-2023, actually. I I mean, what I would say is like, you... They, you can never bet on a crash. You can you can never bet on a crash w- when a crash will happen. You can bet a crash will happen uh, always because a crash is literally yeah. always going to happen. And yeah, I, I think the uh, fact that uh, everyone has miscalibrated demand uh, because of COVID might lead to some weird circumstances where they assume demand will be way higher than it will be. And a big thing about manufacturing is you have to anticipate demand because you need to build, you need to sign contracts and you need to manufacture things months before you ever put a product out or hell years before you ever put a product out. And eventually that will lead to them mass to some extent, massively overproducing Mm -hmm. uh, than what the consumer actually needs. And, you know, once that happens, they'll need to get those out somehow. So that might lead to uh, somewhat of a correction in the market we're seeing. But I, I wouldn't place any bet on when that will happen. Like you said, 23, I, I sometime in the next two to four years. That's my stab at it, say. if everyone's wondering. Like a true crash, like truly a crash, like when you have last gen used cards like below 200, like Vega 56s and 1070s mm-hmm. below 200, which is just awesome. Even 1070 Ti sometimes. like. 
when is that going to happen? Uh, yeah, I think maybe mid 2023, you know, that's when you have a whole year because right now you just got to think supply is getting better, but there's inflation and demand is still really and material costs are up. So it's like prices aren't really coming down. So it's not, it's not really a crash and we're going into the holiday season and then we're going to go into next year where I, I mean, I think you're still going to see all of this demand still there. So I, you know, some people say 2024 and some people, I think it's going to happen sooner than that. It always happens sooner than what some people say, but later than, you know, I don't know, the, the doomsday or six, the doomsday. The, it's like the people that said there's going to be a stock market crash for 20 years and missed out in 20 gains in the S&P 500 and said they were right. <laughs> you know, you were wrong for 20 years and then right one year. You have a, you know, what are you, you're like right 2% of the time, it turns out, actually. <laughs> uh, you missed out on all those gains, bro. But um, which is, again, I just want to put that in perspective, though, of what we're talking about. Like, if you bet on a crash happening, eventually you're right. It's like, yeah, if you bet the S&P 500 will crash, you'll be right eventually, but you might miss out on 20 years of making money. So yeah. it's hard for us to put an exact stab at it. Mine is mid-2023 of like a real full crash, like what we've seen years ago uh, happening. Alex Raptor 23 writes in, hey, Tom, what do you think will happen after the mid-range is capable of doing 4K 144 hertz plus? I don't see people seeking out 8K 24-inch or 32-inch monitors at high refreshes anytime soon because I think it will be extremely hard to tell the difference between that versus 4K at those screen sizes. Will newer-gen graphics cards just start implementing more features like real-time ray tracing instead of increasing performance or VR start to take over at that point? I think both of those things will happen eventually. I think me and you, Dan, think that ray tracing will not be like this fully mainstream thing still for like five years or so. And most guests I have on say the same. Uh, VR, again, I think VR is actually going to be useful for mostly not gaming, mostly for like looking at a house or going to a concert on another end of the world. That's where I really think, or like looking at a product you want to buy on Amazon in VR so you can actually see what it looks like on your desk. That's what I think VR is really going to be used for by most people long term. Um, there'll probably be some really cool movies too. You imagine a World War One movie where you're in the middle of the no man's land wearing VR. That'd be cool. That's true. You almost think you it's could do a, a different version though. of um, 1917. Like that movie mm-hmm. almost felt like it was begging to be in VR by how the camera slowly panned continuously. But anyways, you know, when it comes to will people want a better mid-range card if we're not talking about VR and ray tracing, we're at 4K 144 hertz. I mean... I, here's how I would put it, you know, w- will it suck if the RX 67950 XT from RDNA3 is two grand next year? And let's say the 7700 XT is 550. Yeah, that would kind of suck. But at the same time, if the 7700 XT is as strong as a 3090 or stronger for 550, I think most people in the high end would swallow that even if it's a mid-range card. I, like, I don't know what to tell you. I think if it's stronger than a 3090... I'd say there's your 4K 120 hertz kind of mid-range card. Now, the mid-range is double the price it used to be, but it's also an absurd level of performance. And then what happens if RDNA 4 adds 50% more performance? Like what? Are we looking at a $600 card that's, you know, maybe almost double the performance or more of a 3090? I just can't see people caring then. And I think you'll see a lot of people get a $300 card that, yeah, that would have used to be the very low end, but it's also capable of 4K 60. So no one's complaining at 300 bucks. I mean... Yeah, and I think I've, well, we've definitely had a full conversation about that before on the podcast, but I think I've said, like, I, it, it might sound way far out to people, but I think something like 10 to- cards, like 10 times stronger than what they are right now, it's going to start becoming a difficult argument to sell 
those cards if all they're doing is continuing to push more rasterization performance. Because mm -hmm. at a certain point, at a certain point, what is it even going to be pushing? Like if we're at, if is a card that does 8K 240 hertz even more marketable than a card that does 4K 240 hertz or hell, even for most people, 4K 120 hertz? I don't know how much more marketable that is to most people. So at a certain point, like, yeah, the mid-range is getting more expensive, but I guess my silver lining to that might be the mid-range might just be all you need in a few years. All most people or care five. about, yeah. Yeah. And, and and then again, like I've said about a hypothetical $2,000 7950 XT, you might complain about that, but I'm sorry, that might be double the performance of a 6900 XT. Double the performance of a 6900 XT is for sure capable of 8K60 and probably more easily. At FSR, which you have to remember, FSR works better the higher the resolution is. FSR with 8K, something twice as strong as a 6900 XT, <laughs> you've got an 8K120 card. I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It's not like this bullshit 8K60 NVIDIA push with the 3090 where you add DLSS and it was still barely holding above 50 frames. No, I mean like double that now. No, you're looking at something that's really an AK-120 card with FSR. So it might be 2000, but the performance is absurd. And I just want to note, I did, the, I just did the math quickly just to, just to check. Um, if we're talking about like even a 50, because more than 10 times more powerful, it might sound like a, a far way out to people, but like that's it, six years of performance, 50% uh, performance gains year over year. So I think that can happen within the next decade. <laughs> yeah. Easily. Yeah. And again, just to be clear. So if you, if AMD doubles performance with RDNA three, and then that's 50% more performance with RDNA four, you're looking at mid range cards, 50% stronger than a 3090. And yeah. like three years from now, I guess I'd probably put it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not next year, but three years from now. So let's say end of, yeah. So like 2024, like, yeah, Maybe it'll be six hundred. Maybe it'll be seven hundred dollars. But the eighty-seven hundred XT, I almost said K. The eighty-seven hundred <laughs> XT might be like just again hilariously good at four K one twenty. So who cares anymore? Gosh, Reese, why does Windows Ten Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffers.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. Let's move on then to story number five. Let's talk about Alder Lake really same price performance again. 
So I put together a little write-up here. I, I, I did. I, we're kind of retreading old ground. We only need to spend as much time as this as we want. But there, there's been quite a lot of Alder Lake pricing discussion over the last two weeks. I, I want to put things in perspective for people. So for this episode, Moore's Law is Dead thought it would be good to openly discuss, again, what we mean when we say this about Alder Lake. It's aggressively priced and also expensive in the same breath. Alder Lake is obtaining similar or better price performance than AMD. That hasn't been the case for Rocket Lake, guys. If Alder Lake costs 20 to 30% more than Rocket Lake, but double multi-threaded performance that is hugely competitive with Zen 3. Zen 3 increased performance by 20% while increasing pricing by 10 to 20%. And I now also want to point, put the potential pricing in perspective. DDR5 motherboards will be expensive, but look up what capacities they could have. HEDT capacities, hundreds of gigabytes of RAM on a mainstream motherboard. Then consider the i9. It could beat the 5950X at multi-threaded by a notable margin. It's getting close to Threadripper multi-threaded performance at that point, right? If it, let's say, beats Mm -hmm. it. I mean, once you're above the 5950X in multi-threading performance, okay, that's Zen 3. Threadripper is still Zen 2 right now. Uh, Guys, you're getting fairly close to 24-core Threadripper. (laughs) Now, I think AMD will launch Zen 3 Threadripper at the same time to help nullify this consideration later this year next to Alder Lake. But think about it. You know, that's why it's not going to be $500 most likely because that i9 is just not comparable to the thing it's replacing. And then look around at the Alder Lake leaks. I believe in single-threading Intel wins by a lot and in multi-threading they will compete and often win and sometimes still by a notable margin. Yet I believe the pricing will be aggressive relative to AMD, priced how they price Zen 3, and yet Alder Lake's platforms will be expensive, but also have more features. So I think I've seen a lot of YouTubers and comments of people doubling down on weirdly anti-Intel models right now about Alder Lake being expensive. I think a lot of people are going to have egg on their face when Alder Lake launches, and that's kind of what this story is about, kind of summarizing a lot of the other things that have come out in the past two weeks that, and there are links in the description, that strictly from my perspective aren't new information, but that you, you got to understand what we mean when we're like, it's going to be priced aggressively. If the i9 costs less than the 5950X, it can have hundreds of gigabytes of RAM, and it can have DDR5, and it costs less than the 5950X. So what are you complaining about? And yet it's not going to be cheap. You can be aggressive pricively without being cheap. That, that That's what I mean. Well, yeah, liter- literally, if for the s- uh, same or similar level of, of performance, if they're selling it at a lower price, the there's a strong argument that that's, you know, being sold aggressively. And I think the last time we talked about this on the podcast, you and I both agree that there's a good chance Intel will probably up the price of their, uh, of their equivalent SKUs for the previous generation. Why but wouldn't like, they? I mean... But like if their 10 core i5 ends up costing like what, I don't know, $350. Sure. And it competes with a 5800X. Is that a bad deal? No. And the wild card is, you know, how much of the difference in performance for DDR5 that I've been told about applies mostly to the i9. For all we know, there's like a 5% hit to the i5 using DDR4. And those DDR4 motherboards with the i5 won't be that expensive versus, right, Zen 3. Yeah. You know, still need PCIe 5.0 probably support on it. But, well, you know, think about it, though. That, that still means you have to spend all that money on DDR5. At the end of the day, that's going to be a cheaper CPU plus uh, motherboard cost than the 5800X, most likely. And 
Additionally, it will beat it at everything, especially gaming. So that's an aggressive price point, but it's more expensive than the previous i5. But also keep in mind, there's the i5KF, the one without integrated graphics that will probably slot in right next to the 5600X and completely humiliate it in performance. So like, what are we talking about? The 5600X doesn't have integrated graphics. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's getting to a point where, like, I remember with with uh, points with AMD when they were starting to come back into popularity, especially among like people that people that are really into tech. There were there's this disappointment when AMD releases a new CPU and it's not like half the price of Intel's CPUs and perf- better performance. Like, I think that's kind of the we're kind of getting the reverse of that now. Where it's like, wait, this is. We might be getting a 5950X performance for only 100 or $150 less. What is this bullshit? It's like, I don't know if you're getting 5950 performance for less money. That's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> at, at a certain point. Now, what I'm really curious about is what AMD does with price cuts to Zen 3 and what they do with pricing of Zen 3D. Because I've been told Zen 3D, and it's kind of obvious, is just more expensive because of the Vcash packaging. Having said that, Zen 3 had some pretty big margins on it, like absurdly huge margins. Like Zen 2 had huge margins. Zen 3 extended the margins. Uh, I I mean, it's... So I I wonder what they'll do. Like, so let's say the 5950X. Yeah, let's say... The top i9 beats it in multi-threading. Let's just be conservative. By 10% in single threading, by 20%. Okay. Like, do they then price cut the 5950X if the i9 is $700, let's say? Uh, It might not be. It might be $600. That's kind of what I would do if I was going to be aggressive if I'm Intel. But let's say it's $700. Does AMD drop the price of their 5950X to $700 or $600? Or do they oh. not drop the price more than 50 bucks? They just do 50 bucks because at the end of the day, they have so much supply that they know they might be the only thing you can get your hands on easily. I guess this depends on how much stock they have left over. But, you know, what What did uh, the refresh of Zen 2? What, what did Matisse the, 2? Yeah, that was Comet Lake, right? Oh, for Intel? Yeah, no. What did they launch that against? That was Comet Lake. They launched that. Yeah, against. it was. It's, uh, it was. Yeah, right? it's it kind. Yeah, that and like the ninety nine hundred K and and coffee. Like, yeah, that, yeah. It, it all blends together for me. But yeah. Uh, so I think there's a po- chance that they it, they get rid of all of their excess stock of the fifty nine fifty X launch the fifty nine fifty X three D or whatever they call it and just keep the seven hundred fifty dollar MSRP. So you think they just do a slight price cut because it's 800 right now. Oh, sorry. Then, yeah. I I would expect at least slight price cuts, but it wouldn't surprise me if they still charge more than Intel and say, well, our motherboards are cheaper and they are and you don't need DDR5 that's more expensive and it's like double the price. Like it wouldn't surprise me if AMD is like, we're doing a $50 price cut or we're just price matching the i9 even if it's weaker because the platform's cheaper and then we're just going to slot in Zen 3D at like 700 or 750 as well. Despite having less margins, it's then when Zen 3 first launched, it's like, well, it's then Zen 3 now. Zen 3D's margins would still probably be pretty decent at 750. And <laughs> they'll say, yep, now we're about equal in performance, use less energy and have a better, a cheaper platform. I think that's what AMD is probably going to do. But I, it's still kind of up in the air how much of their lineup will have Vcash on it, to be honest. Yeah, we'll see. I, 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 my main point is I think that I, I think a thing they could do to try to hold a MSRP is just strategically release those Zen 3D uh, CPUs and replace all their SKUs instead of 
acknowledging that instead of directly dropping MSRP, try to hold MSRPs at where they're at with uh, Zen 3D. And here's another question. I saw I saw someone mention this idea. What if AMD only puts Vcash on one of the two dies for the 5900X3D and 5950X3D, and they already schedule dynamically to cores depending on the app it uses, and that's their answer to Big Little is half of our cores have Vcash for a 15 to 30% performance boost. Could they save more money by only using one of the Vcash dies for it? Which I think would make it a little more complex to put the heat spreader on there, but I don't know. That's an interesting idea. I wonder if they do just do one Vcash die on there. Hmm. Huh. Uh, that's interesting. I don't know. what I, I really can't add anything else to that because I'm not an engineer. I, <laughs> frankly. Nor do we know what their yields are. Like, is the packaging yeah. that much of an issue or do they have it nailed so well that it's not really a worry? Yeah. But it's an interesting thought I'd like to throw out there as well. Uh, Bfish36 writes in, he says, the recent Intel CPU and GPU leaks have me thinking. These advancements seem great for laptops and are exciting, but as someone with a 14, an 11400 and a 6800 XT desktop, I can't, can't I basically just skip the next three years? I'm currently at 1440p, waiting for 4K high refresh OLEDs at a reasonable sized monitor for a decent price. My desktop is purely for entertainment purposes. Save a Rocket Lake i5 and a 6800 XT. I can't help but think that you're at least fine for almost every game completely for two years. Yeah, and what I would say is... There's going to be some games that need more cores for sure, but... Unless you can, unless you find a good deal on something though, I would probably prioritize getting a 4k monitor before getting anything stronger i think that you'll <laughs> notice the oled more yeah i think you're fine with an 11 400 6800 xt combo for a while though like that's not a bad setup and let me clarify what i just said i said there will be some games that need more cores i don't mean like need to play i mean like there will be games that I think within two years, though, that do scale higher frame rates with more cores. There already are that scale yeah. with more than 10 cores, actually. You'll get a slight performance boost, assuming all the cores aren't boosting high enough. So, I, uh, you know, but for the most part, I think you're fine, man. I, I, You're not going to do like 240 hertz gaming in every game moving forward, but no one is really because most engines aren't even really built to run at that frame rate yet. So... <laughs> I would say, yeah, you can pretty much just not pay attention. You have a graphics card that's like, I don't know, right? 30 to 50% better than what's in the consoles and a CPU that's about even with them. If it was perfectly utilized, if, like for like, because it's eight cores, but at lower, you know. So I think you're fine for the most. I wouldn't worry. Yeah. Tard on PC writes in, hey, I don't know if that's a nice name. He goes, hi, do you think Intel was asleep at the wheel, partially because they had Apple in their pocket? Up until recently, all Apple computers had Intel chips. In the period of stagnation, Amy got their shit together and Apple made the M1. Just curious if the money from Apple had Intel slacking. Um, I don't actually think so. If you look at what Intel was doing with like those integrated graphics, like I had a MacBook Air with... uh broadwell 5000 hd 5000 graphics and i could play battlefield 4 online in 720p with a 10 watt apu or it was crazy impressive for me um and i think that was one 32 execution units 40 execution units I'm, i don't remember what broadwell brought and then and they used crystal well graphics that was all of those super apus were basically designed for apple so 
No, I don't think they were asleep at the wheel. They were always worried AMD was going to try to swoop in with Zen and take their Apple contract. I just think Apple made something better. And then Intel got real lazy in the desktop space. Yeah, I, I think the complacency came from Intel being in the lead for so long. And I think Apple just goes with whatever makes the most sense to them. And I don't know the timeline of them developing that M1 chip, but I bet they've been developing that for a while. I don't I, I would I don't think I would make the claim that they started developing the M1 chip when they noticed that Intel was starting to stagnate. That's probably been a thing they've been cooking for sometime. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there were rumors that Intel would uh that Apple would have that come out years before it actually even did. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they staved off a generation with what they were doing as well. Um, or at least convince them that they don't need to go to A. Then again, that was the overheating coffee-like MacBook generation yeah. <laughs> too. So I don't know. Uh, I think it was always going to happen kind of when it was going to happen. And Apple wouldn't do it until they really had something impressive ready that just blows everything else away. Because they can't do that big of a switch. The resources required to program all the apps and make sure it all works. Apple wasn't going to do that until it was a crazy good chip compared to what Intel and AMD had. And it was always a factor, and Intel was always fighting hard to stave off AMD, at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let us move on, then, to story number six. PlayStation 5 Pro and Xbox Series S refresh details leaked. On September 7th, Moore's Law's Dead leaked early info regarding the new Xbox Series and PlayStation 5 consoles to be released over the next few years. In summary, a PlayStation 5 Pro is planned at this time, likely releasing 2023 or 2024. Specs are entirely unconfirmed for the Pro, but there will be room by them to ramp up performance quite a bit if Sony is okay with upping pricing or to up performance some at the same or lower price. This would come from new GDDR speeds and a 5 or even 4 nanometer node. People, by the way, who doubt a 5 nanometer console is doable over two years from now sound exactly to me like the silly people who doubted SSDs in 7 nanometer in consoles in 2018. Listen to yourselves for once. And I do have to really emphasize that point because, guys, mid-2018, everyone was like, there's, not everyone, but most people were like, there is no way the consoles have SSDs and they'll not be on seven nanometer. It's too expensive. And I'm like, God, in two years, two years, not right now. Right now, iPhones are on five nanometer. In two years, five nanometer won't be special. We'll be on like three nanometer. We'll be on three nanometer. By the time this will be a five nanometer console, listen to yourselves if you're doubting that's possible. Furthermore, an Xbox Series S refresh is expected with modest upgrades within the next 1.5 years, possibly even late 2022, and an Xbox Series X refresh is expected at some point as well, although after that model. It is worth highlighting as well that these refreshes are likely to improve, not make it worse, Microsoft and Sony's ability to supply more consoles. And it has no effect on current efforts. A lot of people in the comments were just raging about uh, why would they do this if they can't make enough now? Because again, it's in two years, not now. And designing a new console does not affect them making a seven nanometer one now. My God, you people. I'm sorry. This really <laughs> is a problem for me, how much I had to deal with that. Also worth noting, many websites have wildly misrepresented what Moore's Law is dead reeked. I did not confirm a native 8K console at $700. 
fact, I kind of argued against that happening, and I did not confirm the Pro is next year. That's a maybe for the Xbox Series S next year. The Pro would be 2023 or later. All right, Dan, we talked about this a lot before it came out, and I'm assuming you looked into like what I leaked and how it was covered. Like, What do you got to say about uh, PlayStation 5 Pro, Xbox Series S? This was kind of a big scoop for the channel. You know, I would say uh, people doubting any of this, like look back on the past. Sony put out the PS4 Pro, what, three years after the PS4 came yep. out. Three years isn't a huge time span for a refresh. I think I've been making the joke for a while, or not really the joke, but just saying for a while that the Series X and Series S are clearly the new way they're going to try to market their consoles. Mm -hmm. And I think expect a refresh from them in 2022 or 2023. Like, I think all of this is perfectly reasonable, especially with Microsoft's marketing or Microsoft's new naming scheme that they would look to refresh the Series S and Series X two to three years after launch and the PS5 probably feeling the need to uh, follow suit might put out a PS5 Pro somewhere thereabouts. As far as the pricing discussion and everything, I mean, I'm not even sure what the conversation to be had is. I think you and I both agreed, uh, or you just asked me, do you think a console that's 50% stronger, it sounds better or a console that's can run 8K and at $700. And I just said the slightly stronger one sounds way better. And all of our friends people. said that too. Like we asked our friends yeah. and they're like, oh, I'd rather have a $400 console that's 50% stronger in three or four years than a twice or triple as strong one that's 700. We don't need more performance. Just please top off the frame rates and make it cheaper and more available. Yeah, imagine that extra 50% performance or we'll just say that order of magnitude, that level of, increase in performance would allow them to do pretty much stable like six 4k 60 to 4k 120 for any game and i don't think people really want more than that at this point because 8k frankly 8k doesn't even exist so i don't <laughs> know why i don't know why sony would push out a mid-gen refresh that is attempting to be an 8k gaming console that just sounds well like too much to I, me. I would just say, you know, in three years, which again, not now, in three years, maybe 8K will come down to like where OLED TVs were this year or last year. And, you know, maybe Sony wants to be able to push 8K as a feature with this console with their, you know, new TVs that are re that are at mass market prices. I don't, I, I don't know though. I, I, I just think like really doubling down on 4K 120 would be the better route. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think advertising 8K as a feature makes more sense with like a PS6, personally. Yeah, and I also just wonder what they could do on 5 nanometer with the PS5 at a modest, you know, so if you get like, I don't know how much more it is, like, you know, let me, TSMC, 5 nanometer, 20% faster or 40% more power. Right, but what's the density? Because I think the density increase is like, theoretically like 60 to 80 percent but it's not over the seven nanometer uh, seven nanometer okay. but it's not you know it's not like it's double so it's like okay so let's say they have 50 percent more die space to work with you almost wonder if what they would do is someone pointed this out is a for a 54 compute unit monolithic die again with some features from rdna3 and 4 worked in like they did with you know fp16 and stuff and that's just all they do they just like move the 54 
maybe increase ROPs by 50%. So 96 ROPs instead of 64, 54 compute units instead of 36. Because again, what you're doing is making a 56 compute unit one disabling two, because mm-hmm. you need to have that butterfly design for backwards compatibility multiples of 18. So if they just do a 54 one, clock yeah. it a little faster, use that, and then add like maybe not even 128, maybe like 96, 100 megabytes, whatever they can get away with of Infinity Cache, and then just still use 16 gigabytes. I think at that point with where 5 nanometer will be with how much they could save on power supplies. Because again, they're not, they, they could probably make something that isn't even as big of a die as the PS5 base on 7 nanometer, and they save some energy. They could probably launch something by then like 450 or the same price, 500. That's 50% better or more. It's not going to be two to three times better, but I just continually think that's the road. The PS4 route worked for them, and that's the route they should go with this again. Yeah, and I guess just to repeat your point of like doubtfulness on they could have anything like this uh, two years from now. It's like Or three, really closer to three. three. Yeah, like people were are complaining about the idea of the PS4. I mean, not PS4, the PS5 and Series X, like potentially challenging like the 2080 Ti, which by the time it came out was like, what, a two year old card and was being launched against the 3090. The PS5 and Xbox Series X were being launched against the 3090. Like, yeah, don't worry. The top level of performance, guys, is Probably always going to be PC. You don't need to panic. It's going to be okay. Right. Because PC will be way past this performance by then. When the PS5 Pro comes out, even if they go with the $700 or six to $700 price Mm -hmm. increase and where they, I don't know, release a 72 compute unit thing or something. Guess what? AMD and uh, NVIDIA are going to have stronger cards than it. Don't worry. Well, and there was one comment then that was like an 8K console. The 3090 can't even really do 8K. And I said the eight, the 3090 will be mid-range at best by the end of 2023. That's what you do not get, everybody. Lovelace, RDNA 3 are a big deal. It is Ampere was not the big one. The big one's coming. And so if they double performance next year, the 3090, boom, mid-range. And then by the end of 2024, is there going to be a refresh of Lovelace? Is there going to be... An RDNA 4 out, the 3090 is now in the lower mid-range by the end of when this console would launch. And so it's just not crazy to think that might be in a pro console. Yeah. Um, the other thing to move on to then is the Xbox Series S refresh portion, which I believe was the most noteworthy one, which was, I believe, the part that video cards decided to run with as a story uh, with, accurately as well, because there are a lot of websites <laughs> that are just like, Moore's Law is dead, says $800 or whatever, $700 8K consoles coming. is not what I said, it, but th- this is the one that had the more concrete and more applicable to everybody details. I think it was worth pointing out. And that a Series S refresh really seems to be expected by the end of next year, or at least early 2023, and that it is entirely possible to increase performance by 20 to 50% by just using the exact same APU they're using now with the Series S on 6 nanometer, or let's be honest, not even 6 nanometer. They could even use 7. So when they designed the Series S, They designed a 24 compute unit console that they expected from the beginning to disable four compute units. They always have to do multiples of two or, yeah, or multiples of four, basically, uh, for the most part, depending on, yeah, pretty much. That's not strictly true. There's, but let's say anything with a lot of compute units, they really have to disable about four. So they were like, well, it's four or nothing. 
We're not sure how yields will progress. Let's, we're going to disable for us what we plan for. Once you get into 2022, two years after the launch of the Series S, you could conceivably see them go, yields on this are like 95%, guys. We can just leave the whole die enabled. And it's actually clocked at 1.5 gigahertz, which is really low for an RDNA-2-based yeah, APU. There's no reason they couldn't add 20% more compute units, clock at 20% faster with the same die. <laughs> like, so they could launch a Series S refresh Give it just 16 gigabit per second or faster memory. You know, so give it, it'd be imbalanced, but there's a reasonable path here to increase performance by, I would say, roughly 40% using the same APU. And then they just give it a one terabyte SSD, launch it for 350, and then just sell their old stock as the Series S at 250 or 200. And every now and then do some limited you know, runs of the disabled portions that could not become the new Series S model as a $250 OG, you know, Xbox Series S Arcade or whatever they want to call it. This is, I think, a very good idea for capacity reasons, for supply reasons. They could supply more of these in Series X. I think the Series X and the PS5 are actually a little stronger than most people care about. But I think the Series S is too weak. You add 20 to 50% more performance to the Series S, so it really can do 1440p 60 and 1080p 120 more consistently. And you, yeah. you nail that 300 to $350 price with a terabyte storage. I think that's a, that's a winner there. I, uh, more than anything, I think the Series S needs... It, it sounds like it, the Series S needs more RAM and should have just came with a, a one terabyte hard drive to boot. So... Even if they don't increase the performance or the speed of the graphics card that much, if they if they have more RAM in a one terabyte uh, SSD, I think that's just way better than what they're selling. I right somewhat now. doubt though they'll increase the amount of RAM because I don't think yeah, shortages will be over then, unfortunately. But but I agree. I mean, I have a note here. I still think it should have had twelve or fourteen gigabytes. Remember, people, it has two segments: the Xbox Series X has a 10 gigabyte for VRAM, which I think is the perfect amount for a console, you know. I may make fun of the 3080, but that's, you know, an $800 graphics card or more. I mean, usually over 1,000. I think 10 gigabytes, Why? you know, it should have more. But this is a console. They can optimize more for it. 10 gigabytes is plenty of VRAM, you know. And then they had 6 gigabytes of system RAM, which is really cutting it close. But then they gave, you know... What was it? Uh, eight gigabytes of, I guess we can't even really call it VRAM anymore, just faster memory segment for the Series S and two gigabytes of slower. I just don't know why they didn't do eight plus six. So they had the same system memory setup as the Series X. I think that would have yeah. helped a lot. A lot of developers tell me that they're running into VRAM issues, or I'm sorry, it's just RAM optimization issues, similar to the Nintendo Switch, just not as much of a problem with the Series S, and that causes bigger graphical downgrades in some games than necessary. But um, yeah, I don't really think they do it with refresh, but they could. And if they did, again, if they made it 350, gave it like 14 gigabytes of terabyte SSD, increased performance by, let's say, 50%, yeah, that's where I'm like, yeah, I sign off on this pretty much entirely unless AM, in, unless Sony can get the slim or like the discless PS5 to boot the same price, which the yes of to wonder, can Sony do that by then? I don't know. Probably not, but you never know. Yeah, and I think that's the main failure of the Series S. I think the idea of the idea of a Series S where it's essentially a, an Xbox One, I mean, not an Xbox One, an Xbox Series X at 1080p, that's a great idea, but that's not really what they made, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Tick Tickler writes in, he says, I was hard on the Series S, but in hindsight, it seems to have been an incredibly smart play. Well, I think, yeah, I agree. No matter what you think of the execution, the idea is brilliant. He says, I'm seeing it at retail prices all the time now, and I think most people will buy it over nothing this holiday season if it can run a game like Flight Slim as well as NX Gamer found. More than that, the configuration of the hardware basically guarantees a Game Pass subscription. That's what I've leaked. Microsoft is concerned about. They like that subscription that everyone's getting with it. Uh, do you think it's slightly less anti-consumer Team Green? Well, is this anti-consumer? Because behind the scenes, they're calling Xbox a software-as-a-service company. And you can't run games on even the Series X unless you connect to the internet every 24 hours. So who's more anti-consumer is certainly up for debate, in my opinion. But he says, it's going to flood the channels with the Series S over the next few months. Hmm, flood the channels. How do you put that? I don't see it. It doesn't seem like they're selling more than the PS5, and they won't. But I do think that this is going to become a very attractive option, especially if this Black Friday, they can get it to like 250 Yeah, I think well, this is going to be a big seller if they can keep it in stock. And I would say, yeah, two two fifty. I think is the price it should have been at relative frankly, to the but... performance of the PS Five and Xbox Series X. I mean, the four hundred dollar yeah. because really compared to the four hundred dollar PS Five, over double the performance. Uh, I mean, I mean it, 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 it's only and it's only a hundred bucks more to over double your performance. That's like, uh... yeah, exactly. Like the next to the PS Four discless version, it, it looks a, a bit silly in my opinion. I think it should have been 250 or had more storage and RAM. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. agree. But, you know, not everyone needs that. And I think it's pretty close to a brilliant product if they can just tweak that refresh a bit. And it seems like they will. Uh, Greeny writes him, hello, Dan and co-host Tom. I see what you did there. You called me the co-host. Thank, thank you for acknowledging me as the true host. Anyways, he says, recently a video was made by Coding Secrets in in regards to Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart about how an SSD would not be needed to play the game. Sony and by proxy, Insomniac took the approach to use an SSD to do some of the sequences. My guess is it's easier to use the SSD than than to code, like Coding Secrets says he would. Let me just skip ahead then. So I watched the video, six minutes. And he says, and this is someone I believe who says he worked on a Lego Star Wars game that does similar things, according to him, to Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, which I've heard other people mention that game as well, uh, the the Lego Star Wars game that does similar things. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is this. I'm not an expert coder, but I've spoken to numerous developers, both within Sony and most importantly, outside of Sony that are developing for the PS5. And no one has said that's true. So... What I would say is this. Is it possible to make some version of Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart on the PS4? Probably. But I'm, I know, I, no one I've asked believes it would be as seamless. And it would probably require either massively higher hard drive install sizes and or more RAM. Which if you look at his own explanation for how he would do this without the SSD that PlayStation 5 has, he basically says you need to load the, uh, the uh, more future buffers in the RAM. Well, great. So you need yeah. more RAM. Yeah, no shit. Oh, or you need to lower the texture of the assets a ton to get it to work at all. Right. So what I wrote down here as a note is this. So in other words, could they make Rift Apart work without an SSD? Or should I say without Sony's crazy fast SSD and I.O.? Yes, if they spent a ton more time programming to make it work and had tons of install space and RAM. Because I wonder what they'd have to do with hard drives to like, put all of those dimensions next to each other constantly on the hard drive. It'd probably be like 
double the size of an install. He says, or maybe they'll just massively downgrade the graphics and limit the gameplay a little. In other words, could you make this a game like this on a hard drive-based system like the PS4? Yes, but it's not going to look or play as good as Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart. And any port, port to the PS4 will come with some insane compromises in graphics or in some levels of gameplay. And the analogy I made is, would anyone claim the COD 4 version on the Wii is the same as the 360 version? Because <laughs> that's the comparison I'm going to make. The Wii has way less RAM, way weaker graphics and CPU. And also, it runs below 30 frames with horrible view distance, less players on screen, and it's nearly impossible to aim based on reviews I read. But sure, they fit Call of Duty 4 on the Wii. I don't know if that counts, though, as the same experience. And that's the analogy I'd make to getting Rift Apart on the PS4. Can they? Probably. It's not going to run nearly as well. And there will be compromises, though, based on what I've been told talking to developers. Because I think some people just give their opinion without any technical background. Not, not this guy, but, you know, um, or the person he's referencing. But I mean, like, you know, some pundits, shall we say, in gaming. And it's like, that's just not what the experts say that I talk to. Yeah. And I think that analogy works. Okay, go look at the Wii, Call of Duty 4 on the Wii. It's just like half the features aren't there. So, <laughs> um, Sammy Good writes him, I don't see much positive news about the PS5. It seems that it is subject to a plethora of software issues, missing features and misleading statements. Despite that, Sony seems to be afloat on Spider-Man and PlayStation, Mindshare, and not much else. Do you think we could see Disney, Xbox, or Nintendo purchase Sony in the near future? No. No. Next question. I think Xbox, I mean, wait, let me, what is... I looked... Oh, good. No, I... I did look it up like straight up. No, I believe Nintendo has less total equity than uh, PlayStation does. So they have fewer assets. If you take their assets and debts, Sony has more equity than Nintendo does. So that's flat out. Not insane. Possible. No, you'd be, but it'd be more like Sony buying Nintendo and that's not going to yeah. happen either. And I guess if, Disney or Xbox liquidated most of itself, they might be able to buy Sony. <laughs> yeah, it's, it'd take a lot of cash. And God, what I mean, look, if they paid, if Microsoft was forced to pay double the price of Star Wars to get Bethesda, what the hell do you think they'd have to pay to get Sony? And not just all their tech and all that, but all their studios. It's going to be more than $7 billion. It's going to be and that was one that was one studio it's it's going to be like hundreds of billions well, no they i don't think and sony's worth like what like 230 billion alone so they have to overpay no this would be an insane acquisition no 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 and i think questions like this just massively underestimate like how successful they are right now even if that could change in the future cuz they have more competition yeah also halo's not even out yet guys i mean what are we even talking about here PlayStation's doing fine. Are they doing as well as they could be? <laughs> no. I mean, they, keep, they keep saying most... I don't even know if I'm going to get... I'm not even going to get into like their cross-gen upgrade thing going on because it's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, yeah. let's leave it at that. No one's saying Sony's perfect here, but this isn't where you go. Are they going to go out of business anytime soon or be bought up? Tick Tickler writes in, I'm in complete agreement with Tom on streaming. About So I assume he means that I just continually doubt it'll ever really take over the high-end or even really mid-range gaming. But hearing xCloud natively coming to consoles this holiday got me thinking. 
The Xbox One just became a more viable long-term gaming platform than it was when it launched. Even if it's laggy and can't maintain 1080p 60, you can still play next-gen games on it. And I mean, most people don't even know to turn their TVs to game mode. A lot of people can't afford to spend the time and money it takes to track down a new console. And if they keep making their service better and make a smart TV app, I don't know, maybe those Series X chips are better spent in their server racks based on what you said in the new video. What do you think the ceiling is on this? Do you see this alleviating demand at all, or is this just Stadia 2.0 electric boogaloo? No, I, I think it's going to be more successful than Stadia for sure, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, it's on a, it's on a platform that's already, well de- that's already developed and well-supported, so yeah, I would assume it will probably be more successful than Stadia. Yeah. Um, outside of that, I think a lot of this game streaming stuff, you have to remember, for the most part, just comes from, I think, or should I say, will be successful if it complements a service you're already paying for, which xCloud will, or if it's for expanding the market, which you could see that being a thing as well. You know, someone paying $300 mm-hmm. for a Series S that can now stream their games uh, and then, you know, stream it to their TV, which is coming they're, they're, They want to bring xCloud to like all smart TVs, guys, just so you know. Um, you know that, that, but it's about expanding something you already have. Stadia's failure, besides just not being good <laughs> at launch at all, <laughs> is the fact that it's like asking you to buy a console that can't really do as much else as a Series S can. It's not a complimentary service for a giant company that can just throw it on top. It's like, yeah. why would I buy into Stadia if I'm gaming on Steam or PlayStation or Xbox? Are you nuts? I'm not switching platforms. What? <laughs> You're not going to have Halo? You're not going to have God of War? No, I already have an Xbox. I already have a PlayStation. Fuck Stadia. You add xCloud or PS Now on top of some ecosystem people are already buying into. That's when it's successful, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Let us get in to the wrap-up then, which I guess the first story undoubtedly to go into, you know, this is, of course, the section where we go through stories that are worth mentioning but don't make it into it as a main story, is undoubtedly the PlayStation Showcase, which Carbon Cry writes him. He says, would you bet $250 that we will see a console games presentation from Sony or Microsoft ever that does not have a GTA V cinematic? (laughs) It's same as Fortnite. I never make that bet. Although, was Fortnite yeah. not shown at the PlayStation Showcase? Now that I think about it, I don't uh, think it was. I don't know, it might not have been. What, so what did you think of the PlayStation sh- Showcase? I, I, we should probably talk about it briefly. This is the biggest PlayStation Showcase that they do every year, basically, it seems. I was personally pretty meh on it. I don't know if there's some degree of like... Maybe these show I'm just getting a little Hmm. cynical with these showcases because it seems like most people are like, it was at least good. But to me, it's like they they didn't show that much new or interesting. It's like there's an annoying pipeline with games to me where I see and even if this isn't intentional or deliberate, like I see a teaser. Then a year later, I see a gameplay trailer. Then a year later, I see another gameplay trailer. And then I finally actually see a release date. So it's like, what am I even going to get excited about at a certain point? Like I saw the new God of War trailer. Yep. It looks like God of War and I'm sure it will be really good. And I have no, like, this is the first time we're seeing a gameplay trailer. I mean, if we're to to believe, if we're to follow the trends on how they always go, who knows, maybe this comes out in 2023. It's just, I'm just tired of this whole pipeline of 
a teaser one year and then like a year later we actually get gameplay so i'm kind of just a little bit over these in a lot of ways completely because i i don't know what i can see that will actually make me excited unless it's a legitimate new announcement yeah. which th there's i guess there was wolverine which i'm not super into that so i'm sure it will be a good game insomniac's making it and then there was the knights of the old republic which is a surprise yeah that's interesting yeah i i, I don't know i I think there's two ways to look at this. From my perspective, someone who talks to developers behind the scenes, and I know what they're working on to a certain extent, and I know what they could have shown, it was a letdown for me. No Metal Gear Solid still. No, like, you know, big surprise, like, SOCOM reveal, because I know that's probably something Gorilla or someone else is working on. You know, none of this other stuff. Wolverine was the only one that fits into that category of, like, oh, interesting. I did not know about that. And I knew that, and yeah. like I said in my PlayStation 5 and Xbox leak video from that week, I also talked about that show, no Call of Duty, and they wasted the opening on that stupid ad of chess players, which was just the cringiest thing I've ever seen. You know, so I got that wrong, but otherwise, and Stray, but otherwise, of course, they showed gameplay for God of War. Of course, they showed Gran Turismo very prominently. That got a release date. So I got like, some of that right. And to be fair, most of what I said, it was all maybe is because they really weren't sure what to show this time. I don't know. From my perspective, it was meh at best, only because I know they could be showing more. But if you add up the list, it's like, eh, it was at least enough. And they can't keep these consoles in stock. Despite, according to Bloomberg, being on calls with suppliers every day asking for more components to make as many as possible. <laughs> so they don't need to show anything. Halo's not even out. Where's the new trailer for the uh, Halo campaign, guys? Why haven't they shown that yet? Why? A December release date. Like Cyberpunk? Hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah. think Sony's mm. worried about their software competition. I think they showed what they needed to and nothing more, as usual. And until they feel really threatened, which I don't see them feeling threatened until the end of next year, the earliest. I don't really see them doing what they could. I don't know. I think meh. But I think that no one should say it was horrible because if you really look at the list, it's like, it's better than anyone else's showcases. Yeah. Also, let's get to the other stories here. So there's the RTX 2060 12 gigabyte supposedly coming out early next year to help with supply against XE. I think that's funny. I don't have really anything yeah. else to add about that. It's just, all right, what are they going to charge for? 300 probably? At least. I don't... They can charge anything for it in this market, so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see. I saw a USB 3.2 drive approaching one gigabyte per second speeds. I just think that's funny because it's like SATA is just so outdated now. I'm kind of surprised it's... I mean, they should always have SATA so they can throw in a few hard drives, but it's like... I, I, and I don't know that we need a replacement for SATA over just tons of M.2, but I don't know. I, I, it is nice to be able to stack SATA, but it's getting so old in its performance. And, and I, I, I question when uh, somebody like recommends a SATA SSD in a build at this point. Like, it's so much slower. I think there's better alternatives than SATA SSDs. Yeah, I mean, for pretty much the same price, you can get something 10 times the performance. But uh, And again, I think it's worth pointing out that SATA, my, my understanding is the protocol only lets you send data on one direction at a time. So effectively, if you're writing and reading at the same time, it's going back and forth and you're really cutting your speed in half. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, Depending on what you're doing, this thing is like 20th the performance of a gen. Like it's it's like not even. Yeah, it's like wait, wait, wait. It's so much worse. Um, I saw there was a PlayStation Five teardown, and I 
I was really annoyed at some of the coverage there. Like eventually someone actually did performance metrics and it uses less energy. All the components run at lower temperatures than the base PS5, despite having a smaller heat sink and the exhaust being hotter. It's literally what they do with the PS4 Pro redesign. Uh, it really annoys me. Like the, uh, some of the early coverage of that. What? It has a smaller heat sink. So like guys, they would never launch a redesign that has worse performance. So all this hubbub started from somebody taking, uh, posting a video about how when you take a measurement of the heat that comes out of the exhaust port of the PS- new redesigned PS5, it's hotter than the PS, uh, ba- not base, the original run of the PS5. And saying that that makes the case that it, the PS5 new version runs hotter is inaccurate. There are several possible interpretations for what that could mean. It running hotter is possibly one of those interpretations, but that's not immediately the correct one. Like It could just be better at filtering out things affecting components with ambient temperature inside the case. Yeah, like, like it would be like if you threw an ice cube in a glass of two ice cubes in a glass of two different glasses of water and one melted faster. The assumption that I don't know the water in the glass is hotter. There's several reasons that could happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so and all I can and this was a big deal about my last video about how new consoles will actually help supply. Like this redesign is good. It's look at inside of it. There's less components, less metal required. There's shortages on some of these components. Like one now that they know there's shortages, they can redesign the console to require less manufacturing cost and just raw materials. And any whether it's a redesign just for cost and weight or it's a redesign for size or a redesign for more performance, all these new redesigns will be better for availability. And none of them will they do that brings out a worse product because they're not going to do that. The most you're going to see is them not look as flashy. That's what you usually see in redesign consoles. Yeah, and I, I bet Sony is a fan of cutting down a, a third, uh, I mean, what is it, 300 grams for every console for shipping costs. Yep. I bet that's a, Which is a huge problem. Bear it. <laughs> I bet that's a lifesaver. Also, there was this talk about a 6900 XTX for consumers. I don't know what the heck this is. It's been a... St- see. If you cover all gaming hardware news, not a slow week for us. We have a PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series refresh leak to cover, you know? And then we can also talk about a lot of Intel stuff and some AMD. But some people clearly just only cover AMD or... Like, some of these stories, 6900 XTX is already being sold to consumers. This isn't a story. Yeah. I don't understand what's going on with half of this stuff. Also, an M1X GPU performance is coming out that shows it being around a 3070 in a laptop, I believe. That's crazy. And it's interesting that I leaked a 8 plus 32 core Apple. I forgot that Apple calls their GPU cores cores. I wonder if I leaked this. Oh, they do. I wonder if I leaked this half a year ago without realizing (laughs) it and botched it. That's why I put this here. Um... I don't need, I'll skip that one. MI300 with four GPU chiplets. I don't know that. So CDNA3 coming with four GPU chiplets. That's interesting. Yes, it is. I don't have anything to add to that. Zen 3 prices trending lower, getting price cuts. Um, so there are, this made the rounds of some 20 gigabyte 3080 Ti. Again, I think because it was a slow news week. <laughs> and so, oh, look, some graphics card. And I think a lot of websites, if not almost all of them, have misreported this 20 gigabyte 3080 Ti as meaning it proves there was a consideration for this. I was 
told today, actually, this was, if you actually pay attention, the guy just modded the card and was testing it for fun. Oh, wow. So that tells you how <laughs> bad journalism is. Guys, he, he, guys he, he modified the card to 20 gigabytes to do a test and see how it performed, to see how that which version is, would have been, which he found it to be pretty impressive, actually, compared to the higher bus, less RAM version. Uh, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I am. That's a thing. A lot of people, well, not a lot, but that's a thing I know people do <laughs> every this once in a while. Yeah. You'll see a weird config Ram configuration because some guy was bored and bought a bunch of Ram sticks and <laughs> soldered it to the PCB themselves. There was something weird. I saw damn, I saw on eBay, a listing for a service where they will double the Ram of your 560 or 580 if you ship them the card, that they'll unsolder and solder on <laughs> a different thing for a fee. And I'm sure that's because they know some people might want that. And also because I've been told this, that there's a big market right now in desoldering Ram from cards and then selling them in bulk as used Ram modules to make new cards. Like where are these 2060s getting the Ram modules? That a lot of people are just buying. I've heard that there's companies buying up like HG7750s, GTX 960s that still use GDR5, pulling the GD, stripping the GDR5 off of it because no one wants to buy that card anymore. And they can actually sell that RAM module for 10 bucks more than they can sell like a, well, I mean, what, like an HG4870 for? You're not selling that for anything. And, yeah. and so that that might be what this service is trying to do is make a little money getting trading modules, basically. But I was considering sending in an RX 560 to make it an eight gigabyte 560 for fun. <laughs> How'd that be funny? I don't know. I still haven't decided if I'm going to do that. It would be fun. Yeah. Maybe it might be a fun review video, like how much RAM can this PS4 performance card really do? Um, and then also, this was interesting. It's a very good write-up by uh, Ian Cutris of Anantech about Zen 3 having a ring bus. He, he, he points out something. I love how he words it in his article that whenever you see some of these hot chips presentations on products that launched like half a year ago, like Zen 3 in this example, you basically accept, expect a presentation by someone knowledgeable that just tells you a bunch of things you already knew. But they said Zen 3 has a ring bus like Intel now. And that was really interesting. He kind of analyzes if that's going to be a problem for scaling core counts for CCD, just like Intel did. It's just funny to think that Zen 3 moved to ring bus eventually, like Intel did, once they thought they had the yields to get away with just an 8-core CCD. I mean, if that was a that was a scaling issue with Intel, so I would expect it would be at some point with AMD. And I wonder if they'll just be stuck on what, eight core CCDs for the foreseeable future then? Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense like why they would or if they just moved to 10 cores and stay there forever and then just worry about different types of like SMT4 or again, just more chiplets. Yeah. There's no reason you'd need more than eight cores on a CCD anyways for certain apps with low latency. I don't think anyways though. So, you know. All right, Dan, you want to knock out this final reader mail? Sure. Okay. Bill Gates writes in, Hey, Tom and Dan, Wow! can you guys, I know, right? And, you know, we have Scott Herkelman and Pat Gelsinger writing in. He goes, can you guys share your opinion on the Apple versus Epic case ruling? Yeah, I think you looked into this, Sam. I'm not sure what, like, uh, opinion-wise, I guess the overall decision is, I believe Apple technically won. Epic owes Apple several million dollars in damages. It's frankly for both companies. It doesn't sound like it's that much money for no. either of them. Um but the ruling was essentially, as far as I can tell, uh, 
there's no monopolistic or antitrust case that can be made against Apple for requiring that 30% fee when it's bought through, when they buy things through the Apple app on uh, for Fortnite. But they also s- say that it's antitrust for Apple to not allow uh, Epic to steer people away from Apple to buy products. Like they can say, you can buy it here as well. Like, so I think overall, I, I, I'm assuming then we'll see Epic maybe get its way back on the Apple store if they are fine with paying that 30% fee uh, when it's bought through Apple. But Apple can't say you can't redirect your customers either. Right. So yeah, they, yeah, Apple owns the store. Their rights are their rights, but you can't like not let people tell them where they can buy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Which is a I decent mean, I compromise, say- I would say. Yeah, it's broadly co- pro-consumer, I guess. It's not a, I don't think it's a huge thing either way for the consumer, though. It's more of a case. It's more of like what Apple can demand of people that put stuff on their store. And, you know, people are going to put things on the Apple store usually anyways because it's a huge market. You know, I would go as far as to say, I can't be 100% sure because I don't know how important it is to Epic that they be able to just tell you openly. It's probably a big win in that regard. But overall loss for Epic, I mean, the amount of things that leaked about how they run their business and how pissed True. Sony's got at them recently, leaking how Sony... Wasn't there some crazy leaks in there about like PlayStation basically getting a cut of every sale, even on other stores, like as part of some yes. deals? There, there was some. There was some crazy stuff in there. It, the discovery just it, it just destroyed it, 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 i'm sure epic is really and it's a lot of their partners that had stuff they had leaked through epic or there that's who lost it, honestly it was yeah. not epic or apple people who work with epic are the ones who lost yeah and i think this does just show um why why so many companies for so long were so apprehensive to have the uh crossplay thing enabled because once you get into crossplay you are potentially crossing the wires of so many different like payment and <laughs> negotiations that it makes sense why they were any company was reluctant to do it until people pretty much demanded it right. be there um tick tickler writes in he says tom and dan i never got your thoughts on how the demon souls remake towed the line of remaking i was sad that they never ended up putting in that cut sixth arch stone but then i thought about the change to the fat minister's look and i thought maybe it's for the best (laughs) fingers crossed on metal gear solid new game mechanics and cheers i mean i think we've talked about it enough we think it's an excellent remake we think they did some tweaks to weapons mechanics and other balancing like making the grass that heals you Way, way more, which is a common sense thing. Anything outside of just <laughs> yeah. openly common sense, everyone in the community 100% agrees stuff. They said it wasn't their place to change the gameplay or add new content because it could ruin the pedigree of what the game is remembered as, I guess. They wanted to preserve the experience and enhance it in every way that won't ruin how people remembered the game. Um, that, that's what I think. I don't know if I agree necessarily about not putting the sixth archstone in because I would have loved a new set of areas. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have been worth it. We'll see. I mean, I hope it gets added at some point. The assets do already exist. Yeah. Like people have un people have like walked around in the sixth archstone world. There's no it's not populated with enemies or anything. So I I don't think uh 
I, I think I you could agree that from Bluepoint's perspective, it wasn't their place to, you know, make a new area because it's not yeah. like it was a completed area. The map, as far as I know, was completed, but the area was super far f- from completed. Laz writes in, hi, Tom and Dan. We all know why exclusives can be annoying for the consumer. However, do you think exclusives would benefit, do sometimes benefit gaming? System sellers can focus more on a good experience over immediate monetization. Future non-exclusive games may copy some of their ideas, pushing the whole industry forward. Would these games exist in their current form if they were designed to be cross-platform? I, I would just say that exclusivity can be good. Like Bayonetta 2 wouldn't exist, we're told, if Nintendo didn't fund it. They wouldn't have made another Bayonetta. So it's like, how's that bad? And that there are always some games where like Mag, where it was like they thought only possible on one console's CPU. Or like there were a lot of games on the original Xbox that just wouldn't have fit on the PS2. So you know, did Microsoft fund these and then they never would have existed at all if it wasn't for Microsoft? Yeah, maybe. Same for Nintendo's exclusives. And there's exclusives really aren't bad, I don't think. Um, I just think they can be a complete fuck up, like that Tomb Raider sequel where, I don't know, you said someone's claiming that uh, Microsoft supposedly paid $100 million for that Tomb Raider sequel and Tomb Raider's thought of as like kind of a PlayStation game and all it did is really piss off everyone at Crystal Dynamics make everyone mad and then and then by the time by the time the tomb raider sequel came to playstation it was competing with like a newer uncharted and no one gave a shit and i would say for exclusives as a whole like whether you think they're good for the consumer if you think it's a controversial opinion to say they're good for the consumer good for the market or whatever because i think to some extent the whole argument of a pro or anti-consumer gets really muddled unless you agree the only thing that's good for the consumer is the is a financial race to the bottom every time which i don't think it is Uh, (laughs) there are times where that's good where it's like oh graphics cards are lower price because they have to outcompete each other that's good for the consumer generally but i mean look at the pedigree of games that are exclusives versus third party are there third party games that are uh, classics oh yeah tons of them but the majority, I think, of classic games are exclusives to one of the consoles, like Nintendo, Sony, or or built Xbox. from the ground up for PC, like you know, yeah, like Half Life like, Two, like Crisis. Yeah, I, I I would say the majority of the classic games are are exclusives to one platform or another, or a and, higher proportion at the very least than yeah. usual. We should say, yeah, and. I think there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> I don't think that's just they a focus just on the gameplay and making the vision. They don't have to like make it work on everything and like make it have widespread appeal. They're like, no, this will sell well because it's PlayStation people will buy it. Xbox people will buy it. I will say there's also the other side of the coin, though, where I think there's these forced competitors. Like I think Hayes on PlayStation was like, let's make a Halo and it sucked and it wouldn't have sold that's anything. True. Well, it didn't sell anything really because it was so bad. But I always, I feel like some exclusives are just made to compete with what an exclusive is on the other one. And if it was third party, no one would buy it. But sometimes that's good though. Horizon, I think, Horizon the racing game is better than Gran Turismo at this point. And that's, they needed a competitor to Gran Turismo. But then there's some like shooters where I feel like some of these exclusive shooters that are made, like the conduit, it's like, let's put a halo on the Wii. And it's just like, no one would have bought this unless it was the only decent online shooter on the Wii. It's like... Also, you, you mean uh, Forza, right? Forza. Well, yeah, I was thinking of Forza you, Horizon. You, 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 I'm yeah, tired, yeah. guys. I meant Forza. 
You know, I'd say Forza's kind of exceeded, at least. I think most people would win and argue with me that Forza's now considered the best racing series above Gran Turismo, at least for now, until a new one comes out. Um, if it ever does, because well, we know there's a release date, so I guess it will now. I'm always skeptical, though, because they take forever. But, you know, but then again, yeah, I think like games like The Conduit on Wii, it's like, that wouldn't even, no, that wouldn't exist if they weren't trying to make a Halo competitor for Wii, because then they yeah. just buy Halo on the Wii. <laughs> I mean, come on. I just think when, yeah, the exclusives allow them to make uh, what a vision they want to that doesn't necessarily have to sell uh, across all of these platforms as well. You get games like, uh, I'm not a huge fan of it, honestly, but like Gears of War game that people love, like The Last of Us, that's an exclusive. Uh, I mean... I guess the plethora of Mario and Zelda games that are always get critical acclaim, those are exclusives. I, I think there's a reason, a, the exclusive exclusivity fosters an environment that creates those classics. And, and you're saying it can't just be a coincidence that so many of them are good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Timo writes him, hearing news of China and considering its effect on Western companies too, like Blizzard catering to the audience and adjusting to Chinese political demands, how big of an effect could it have on shaping new trends in business models and gaming? Online microtransactions, addictive debt gambling, things have become abundant and almost a facto in AAA. So could there be a new major trend coming in two to three years? Yes, I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's a massive effect. Some would say just like uh, the West's effect, like or even just the United States effect because uh, of how much of the content is bought by the U.S., you know, what our market wants is yeah. a huge change on, like, what games are made in any country, in Europe or Asia. The difference being, though, I think it's like, well, yeah, but that's organically what the market in the U.S. wants, not what a communist dictatorship dictates it should be. And I always worry when you have, like, an autocracy, like, dictating what a Western company can put in its art. It's like, it's kind of absurd that anyone's that people aren't talking about this more. And I don't know, it's going to have a huge effect for the most part, at least in the immediate term. Yeah. And I don't, things are getting weird with the, the market right now where, you know, with movies, China is known to be the, is known to also be one of the big money making markets now. So they make uh, like in Disney movies, they like make edits they make small choices like the barely inclusion of a gay character in a Disney movie, and then they can edit that out in the Chinese version. Yeah, they'll just put it in to get the brownie points in the West, because if they make him an integral character, it's not easy to cut out of the Chinese version. Yeah, and I, I think you're going to start seeing weird things like that. It's really weird that we're okay with them doing that, but... Hey, companies, it's a free market. They want to make money there. It's just a little scary when it just feels like an autocracy is telling a Western company what to do to me. Yeah, I agree. All right. On that uh, tiptoey note. Fun. Oh. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it, you know, it's important enough that it's like, you know, grow up. We're going to talk about it sometimes, guys, because it affects your games. Um, uh, otherwise, I think that's about all I have to, we have to cover here. All the reader mails, the stories. Anything else you want to say, Dan, before we close this one out? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, as always, thank you to all those that listen. Remember, please subscribe to Broken Silicon on the podcast app of your choosing. Give us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's what really drives a lot of new viewers to us. If we can get up there, we were in the top 20 tech podcasts on Apple for a month there, like last year. Like, if we can get back up there, even in the top 10, this just recommends us to a whole other group of people that might not be on YouTube. 
Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, tell your friends about us, support us on Patreon. If you can, you can submit reader mails, you can submit mail for guests. You can, uh, get exclusive ad-free versions of podcasts and podcasts like Die Shrink, which we just did one in Nintendo's business model only for patrons. So there's stuff like Flyover States, Hits and Gems, other upcoming podcasting projects I'm putting together exclusively and at least ad-free and early for patrons as well. Do you remember that's there? Couldn't do it without them. And, uh, yeah, I guess thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, have a good week. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al Kawari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Pear, Zachary Martin, Terrence Heradrita, Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Book King Kilo, Fatboy Disru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey, There's a Kitty, Greg. T. Wanchuk, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rana, Rick, Chris Lakata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Greffa, Joaquin Hagen, Total Silo, Sul Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Suit Taylor, Trevor Power, Sue, Elenia, Nanyan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Dan, Dane Golanowski, Alex Carasteel, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, 
Joseph Caraman, Brett Summers, Judd Y, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicolella, Zlecki, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Town, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoes Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Jehu Sarah Light, Michelle Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Joseph Floria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake223, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, Kalik Souza, Michael D, and MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Scott Rep Schneider, Mai Sharona, Y Truy, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Henry Shang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Reagan, Olden Mobley, Matthew is here, R.P. Sharma, Megan Bork, Jimmy N.G., Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Z. Jitz, Shield TV, Guto, Aaron, John Wizink, Sam Vensel, Mark Mitchell, Prusha, Jeremy So, James Anderson, Jesse Jaskowiak, Ian Clifford, and thank you to Sahara for the music. 